1: company. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next few hours. You are not going to believe the company. This company. You're going to bankrupt your mama's company. At least I have the radio to keep me company. On 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan.
2: So if you were Jimmy Cook, and you're not, you're Jimmy Cook, but if you were, give me the name of an Indianapolis Colt player. Bernard Ryman. If you're Bernard Ryman, and it's a, today's a Thursday, right? Yep. So you know, you're like, okay, I got nowhere to be until Monday. It's like Homer Simpson, woo, four-day weekend. Where would you be? What what are you doing?
3: Well, I at first thought from a bi-week perspective that I would go somewhere tropical, but then you reminded me that it's probably better to stay stateside, logistically
2: speaking. So on a beach in Miami. Yeah, that's fair. What if you get sunburnt though? That would suck, right? Yeah. I guess we're stocking up on the aloe, then. It's a risk I'm willing to take. Now, the other thing is this. Like, do you – one of the tricks of a bye week – obviously, the Colts are on a bye week. But one of the tricks also is, like, do you – and I know it's just one week. It's not like you're going to suddenly become gelatinous by not working out for a week. But do you treat it like a typical vacation where you're like, I'm going out and we're going to have – I'm going to have beer at lunch, beer at dinner, (laughs) I'm going to not work out. I mean, do you literally like just totally step yourself aside and cleanse your palate? Or are you like, no, I'm still like going to the gym and working out twice a week and whatever else.
3: I'm definitely not treating it as a cheat week. I don't know if I'm working out as hard as I would during a regular week, but in terms of a food consumption standpoint, I'm sticking to whatever my seasoned diet is. I'm not straying away from that path too much, if that makes sense. I, um... What
2: would you be doing? You know, I think a lot of that depends on how I feel going into it. Um, you know, am I coming off injury? Like, it may be a different week for Shaquille Leonard or Juju Brents than it is for Michael Pittman. You know, or I, you know, for that matter, Zyra Franklin, I mean, you know, most guys I think at this point have something they're dealing with. I mean, you have been going through I, – there is part of me – that thinks, Jimmy, like, you know what, maybe I'm better off just staying at home, getting two or three massages to, like, just keep my muscles loose and just let everything heal. And I think that part of that probably comes with just overall maturity. I mean, if I was a young player there's no doubt that I'd be like, man, I'm going to Miami. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, Padre, whatever, right? I'm going to the Sun. I'm going to get out of here.
3: I think it also would depend how much family you have here, too. That, that's a big like, part Like, for instance, if I'm a married man, which I am, and if I'm a Colts player that's a married
2: man, then I'm probably, yeah, spending time with a Colts the family. If you're a Colts player that's a married man, are you wearing a Colts wedding ring? Oh It's Only not, it's game not a game
3: day, so no, we're just, we're just relaxing with the bye week. Just a normal band, I think.
2: We haven't asked Carl his opinion on that. By the way, good afternoon to you. It's a Thursday. My name is Jake Corey. That is Jimmy Cook. Carl Shoba is filling in for Eddie Garrison, who is on bye week um, CEO working hard. Carl, you're a married guy, correct? Correct. Uh, Jimmy Cook, the other day, he's a, he's a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs, okay? The other day when we were in here, Kansas City had a Thursday night game, and I happened to look down. My eye just happened to catch that that Jimmy's wedding band had been removed. <laughs> And on that particular day, he was wearing a Kansas City Chiefs ring on his wedding finger. Yeah, that's a mistake. Thank you. Thank you. So you agree with me, right, Carl? I agree.
3: Yes. Always married. <laughs> See? Carl knows what's up. I wasn't not married that day. <laughs> and there's only one person's opinion that matters in this equation, but which you is my have, wife.
2: Here's the thing. Well, you have seven other fingers.
3: Sure. To choose from. But I don't, like, I'm not a ring guy. Like, I don't wear, like, I don't wear jewelry okay so if I'm throwing yeah. on like extra rings I got, then yeah. I feel like I'm
2: being somebody I'm not Jake a, a a a round object with the Chief's logo that goes around your finger <laughs> exactly not, that's perfectly not, normal that would not would constitute jewelry <laughs> just so you know right? I
3: can't go get that at uh Tiffany who can't go to uh, no. uh this is Tiffany right here
2: really yes nice I, I, I'm sure it is yes I, Tiffany I'm a big fan of Tiffany it's probably like the – I'm the sucker that they get because they're like, yeah, this guy thinks that like it's it's actually worth this amount of money he's paying
3: for. I'm getting ads in my TikTok feed. I don't know if my wife's trying to send me messages for like Christmas presents or what, but I keep getting Tiffany ads. I don't know
2: what's – Really? Up. Yes. Yeah. It's a great store. And you go in, when they've got a great cleaning service for their jewelry. Uh, Pacers, obviously, off. You know, tonight uh, or today, this afternoon, it's going to be Tyrese Halliburton, I believe, is the host this year. But they always have a different player that puts together a – Essentially, a Thanksgiving-style dinner for the needy here in Indianapolis. And uh, I am in charge of mashed potatoes, brother. I'm the mashed potatoes director. So that's you, that's be, your role? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's I'm awesome. I'm going to be scooping mashed potatoes over there today. And I am thrilled that they gave us the opportunity to do it. And I look forward to doing it later today. I was going to read off the other people. Do you want to know the other chefs? Please. These are the other uh, chefs that are taking place. Not chiefs, which would I, I know probably... Yeah, it throws
3: my brain for a little spin. Okay, here we there, go. Thank you for the clarity.
2: Um, let's see. My role is I have the assignment of mashed potatoes. Now, here the here's what's being served, and you tell me which one who and I'll tell you who would serve it to you. Garden salad, salad dressing, fresh fruit salad, holiday ham, candied yams, green beans, buttered corn, roasted turkey, cranberry sauce, stuffing, mashed potatoes, gravy, dinner rolls, pumpkin pie, and pecan pie. Who am I getting that roasted turkey from? You are getting the roasted turkey from, stand by, let me roll up, Miles Turner. Oh, nice. Yep. And the stuffing? Uh, the stuffing you are getting from Sabrina Knox Okay. of U.S. Foods. Nice. Um, ooh, now this might be tough. This might be tough. The gravy, Daniel Tice. <laughs> I... You, by the way, I don't know if he's sending the RSVP they're, they're, or not. <laughs> this this suddenly just took an odd they're, turn. They're,
3: well to make it even more uncomfortable, or at least make it more like true sports contract relevant. This isn't breaking news, but it's an update on the Daniel Tice story. This is from Keith Smith. Keith, <laughs> try again. Keith Smith, who covers the NBA, Daniel Tice gave up almost two point two million dollars in his buyout from the Indiana Pacers. A league source told Spotrac. That's the same amount as the prorated veteran minimum contract that these will get from the Clippers when he signs. So that's a offsetting thing there. The Pacers can now create up to nine point seven million dollars in cap space this season because of the move. Whether or not they use it or not, who knows? But nine point
2: seven million dollars more available on the Pacers. I, I books. guess the question would become: At what you know? I think the Pacers roster right now, Jimmy, is is pretty solid. You know you 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 ever played fantasy basketball? I have. It's actually kind of fun. But if you play fantasy basketball on ESPN, for example, you have so many, or just fantasy football in general, any sport, you know, you you have to have like so many receivers, so many running backs. And you're like, oh, you know what? Like, I really want to pick this guy up, but I already have like three running backs and I'm only allowed to keep five running backs or whatever it may be. So for the Pacers, it does feel like at every position, they have pretty solid one, two, three. Now... Because Tice is on his way out, then maybe the bigs are the area where you could use some depth. I really like – you know, Turner's played really well for them. And Jalen Smith is off to a really good start. Isaiah Jackson still to me is kind of the curveball because you look at Isaiah Jackson and you're like, okay, is he is he just an offensive pogo stick? Can he be a defensive piece for me? You know, I don't know. exactly, And I think he's a fine player. But I don't know that there's a defined – Area where you say that's where Isaiah Jackson is going to go. So so until you have solidarity of what exactly his best role is, I don't know that you feel like you have the defensive depth perhaps just yet, or just the the bulk depth on the interior. It, Obi Toppin is the other one that we mentioned, but Obi Toppin, I mean, and again, against Giannis and Joel and Embiid are fairly unfair areas to critique a guy's defensive ability. But like against Giannis, Obi Toppin was a turnstile. On yeah. the block. But, uh, you know, that's that hardly makes Obi Toppin a rarity. I mean, you know, the guy's an MVP player that he's trying to guard. I look at that
3: cap space, and if they decide to use it, my brain automatically goes to the idea that if they end up moving somebody at or around the deadline, and I'm not saying he's going to get moved, I know it's a kind of a touchy subject because Pacers fans have split feelings on the idea of him moving, but Buddy Heald's always the name that comes up. Yeah. Let's just use him as an example. If they were to move Buddy Heald at the deadline, I see that cap space as potentially a tool if the Pacers decide, no, we're not looking for picks as much, but maybe we want to look at a another second or third year player that's already in a contract that's a little bit pricey, but we have the cap space to now take it on. Maybe that's the angle for that move, or, or maybe they utilize it for – well, they can't really use it as much for an extension because you're looking at year-by-year year cap impact versus just one year. So when I look at what's left, I think that's an additional piece if they decide to make a trade. Or, to your point, Jake, whenever we get to around March or whenever buyout season is, maybe there's a big man or a depth piece the Pacers want to go out and get, and they then have that cap space to make that signing.
2: Uh, by, by the way, Buddy Heald, you mentioned? Yeah. Uh, Buddy Heald in charge of candy yams. Nice. Nice. Bruce Brown is in charge of Garden Salad. Guarding the salad or Garden Salad? Both. Since he's brought in as a defender. I didn't know if maybe he was. They're they're spelling it (laughs) G-U-A-R-D-I-N apostrophe. He's Garden Salad. (laughs) Try getting yourself a salad. We dare you. Bruce Brown is there in front of it. Uh, Quinn Buckner in charge of salad dressing. Nice. Uh, T.J. McConnell, fresh fruit salad. Uh, Let's see. Buddy Heald, as I mentioned, candied yams. Mark Boyle, green beans. Miles Turner, the roasted turkey. Uh, Daniel Tice, gravy. Uh, Gravy's indeed, right? Uh, Eddie Gill, pumpkin pie. Shout out
3: as well uh, to not only Mark Boyle, but Rick Carlisle and the entire Pacers organization. Yesterday, they launched a new initiative that was conceived by Coach Carlisle called Drive and Dish to address inadequacies in distributing food to Indianapolis families in need. That was along with Mayor Joe Hogsett. As well as Mark Boyle, Rick, and others introduced the program yesterday at Cambridge Field House. Very important around the holidays to give where you can. Totally, and this is a cool initiative. Totally,
2: and I look forward to the deal uh, later today. But Pacers off now until Orlando. They take on the Magic. Um, you know, it's interesting too because when you look at their schedule, it does kind of lighten up, and you kind of feel like this week is Thanksgiving week. Indiana's next big test. They, they obviously, you know, for Indiana, Jimmy, and I'm talking about the Hoosiers. You look at it, and maybe this is a trap game for Indiana because of the fact that here we are, and when we were talking about what we want to do today and who we want to talk to, John Fanta's is a guy that covers the Big East uh, for FoxSports.com, and it's going to join us on the program coming up as part of our Thursday road trip. He's going to be doing that in just about uh, a little under an hour because he covers UConn. As a matter of fact, I called him yesterday to see if he could come on the show, and he literally said, he answers the phone. And and as you'll hear from John Fanta when we have him on, not only does he have the name of a subpar soda, but he's he's got a like an incredible energy about him. Right? Oh yeah. And so he answers the phone and he goes, "Hello," and I'm like, "Yeah, is John there?" This is John. And I'm like, "Oh gosh, I've called him in the hospital. I, I, like, I, I don't know if everything's okay." And so I said, uh, "Is is is everything okay? This is Jake Quarry in Indianapolis, the radio. Oh yes, I know who you are, Jake." And I said, um, is, uh, did I call you at a bad time? Well, I'm at a shoot-around right now, and I'm standing next to Gino Ariema, and he's looking at me very strangely. And I said, <laughs> how about I call you back in a half an hour? <laughs> okay, that'd be great. Thanks. Um, but he is very dialed in with the Big East. And so th- what's interesting is we're talking to him because we want to kind of preview Indiana and Connecticut, which means is this in fact a total trap game For Indiana, based on the fact that when you look at it, this is not Connecticut's not next on their schedule, Jimmy. Right. So if we're already looking forward to Connecticut, is there the chance that Indiana is? And the reality is that the way Indiana has played so far, I don't know that they can have any overlooks, right?
3: Yeah, they they can't afford for this to be a trap game by true nature, even though by definition, that's kind of what it is because you're looking ahead to a matchup with the defending national champions in the empire classic out at MSG, which should be a great time for all teams involved. That said, FGCU who are going to monitor in the season to see what kind of team they really are was okay. You chalk it up to rust. As we stressed on Monday, army was near the bottom of almost every statistical category in D one basketball losses to Marist and the Stony School that I can't remember. I always Stonehill, forget. Stonehill. Yep. That's who it was. That's right. I always want to say Stony Brook for so some. A lovely
2: reason. subdivision over there off of
3: Old Road. Exactly. Railroad. exactly. Uh, they can't afford that to happen against Wright State, even though that's at Assembly Hall. Scott Nagy is eighth year at the helm of the Wright State Raiders. They've gone to two NCAA tournaments, most recently in 2022, and they're picked like third or fourth to win the Horizon League. This is by no means a powerhouse by any means, but if IU struggles the way they did against Army and particularly allows. Lights out, shooting like they did against Army. It could be another long, painful, agonizing night at Assembly Hall. Doesn't mean it won't end in a win, but yeah, you can't afford to have this as a trap game. But here's the, the thing: they play right state.
2: Yeah. Okay. Sure. You know, they played Wright State to open the 93 tournament at the RCA Dome. I remember it well. They beat them. Then they had to go and play Xavier and Brian Grant and Aaron Williams actually kind of gave them fits. They won that. Then they beat Louisville. And then they got beat by Kansas, 93 in the tournament. Okay, that's my experience of knowing Wright State basketball. But Wright State right now, 0-2. They lost to Colorado State by nearly 30. They lost to Toledo in a close game, but they lost to Toledo. So they're 0-2. It's not as exactly a, a formidable foe, but the, the challenge for Indiana is the fact that conventionally you look at it and you go, okay, like Indiana wants to be able to utilize these games to find out different rotations, to find where depth is, to, to, to move the ball to different areas to see how guys react to it, and yet... The way that they've played their first two games, Jimmy, they've kind of denied themselves that opportunity because they're still trying to figure out their starting unit, how they play together.
3: You know what I mean? And They've been too inconsistent in that process, as you mentioned, trying to kind of roll things out at full speed while still trying to establish connections with their newcomers on the roster. They've looked lost at times post-Trace Jackson Davis in terms of trying to look at what this offense is going to be. And I'm not saying you can't still use Wright State as an experimentation game, but you can also do that while taking care of the basketball. Games a
2: good way of saying it.
3: You can still do that while taking care of the basketball, while not getting out to a slow start. Like, I'm, I'm fine with rotating anything out that you want to in terms of fine-tuning where your lineups are going to be or trust guys in situational moments, but let's have it be done because Wright State forced it that way, not because you're handing the basketball back over and look lost offensively. I would like to see out of the gate – Indiana, take advantage of mismatches and build themselves an early lead like any, you know, anybody wants, right? That's the ideal situation. A coasting type of win. This is not a team that's good from beyond the arc. This is not a team that in theory should beat you the way Army did even though Army wasn't able to at least on paper, shoot that well from beyond the arc. So there are areas and advantages and the type of mismatches that are present when it is a powerhouse program versus a mid-major that said if you take it off and you continue to have these lapses offensively you're gonna be in another dogfight until the end and you'll see if you're able to
2: pull yourself out of it but by the way um we're talking about stonehill and i said it sounds like a subdivision Yep. uh give me like some aspect of nature just like you know leaf rock boulder just give me any like creek moss moss okay and then give me some sort of a some ad ad lib some some sort of an adjective Uh, i'm sorry i'm sorry some sort of a verb some sort of a run, jog, jump, skip, hop, whatever it might be. Let's do jump. Jump, okay. Um, yeah, I don't know that this works, though. Your subdivision would be moss jump or jump moss. Jump moss, does that work? Yeah. Like Particularly I Particularly if Zach lives there. What's that? Particularly if Zach lives there. <laughs> That's right. Nice. Yeah, I'd go with, I would go, well, Zach would be moss run, though, right? yeah, yeah. He jumped for that catch, though. Marble run. That, that's that, that's marble run. I don't know if that's a subdivision or an ice cream, but when I build a subdivision, that's what it's going to be called. And then Stonehill. And, and whoever it is can can play them, and we'll find out whether or not they're any good, right? Uh, did you do anything fun last night?
3: Went saw Adam Sandler last night at Gambridge Fieldhouse.
2: Oh, I meant to ask you about that. Everybody here was there, right? I think so, yes.
3: Yeah, the the uh, bodies from the morning show, Mark Dykedon, Andy Sweeney, Kevin Bowen, Eddie Garrison was there. I was there. Yeah, you were yeah, so not there. Did you
2: have a suite? Were you on the floor? Were you in the rafters? Where were we, where were we sitting? We were up. Uh, we
3: were up in the uh, Lexus loft. We were in the in the box seating up there in the Craig Duvall Ball.
2: Uh, since it was Lexus, did you check it for scratches because they might actually try to bill that to you at the end? <laughs> I, I believe it or not,
3: they gave me a sheet that talked about all the scratches that were on my chair. But for some mm-hmm. reason, when I left, there were seven hundred dollars yeah, on my credit right. card. I don't that's That's exactly right. Very odd.
2: Go go figure. Right. So how was so? Here's the thing with Adam Sandler, and let me show my uh, naivety about this. Sure. Look, I mean, obviously, I I know of Adam Sandler. I mean, he's there's there's no way I can't know of him, uh, and I like him. I've liked some of his movies. I, I really liked some. of It's odd because some of the movies that he is most known for, to me, were secondary in terms of how much I liked them to movies that were not his bigger hits that I enjoyed more. Like I really liked Big Daddy, for example. Oh, I loved Big Daddy.
3: That was like um, that's one of my favorite movies as a kid. I know that's probably you know, not I've, the great path. But I don't hey. know that I've
2: ever watched Happy Gilmore from beginning to end. I mean, I've seen every part of it, right? Um, I liked Grown Ups, and a lot of people didn't. First but,
3: one was fine. Second one, I don't know that I needed it.
2: I don't think of Adam Sandler as a stand-up comic per se, and I, before people kill me for that, because I know he was on SNL, and I mean, I remember when he was doing a thing for MTV, going to IU, and he was in. Jackson Heights playing pickup basketball with Dean Garrett. I mean, you know, but I know of his songs that he does, and I know that he's got a funny demeanor about him. Was this like a typical stand-up show where he comes out with a microphone and just tells jokes, or was it more of a music concert where he's playing funny songs or a combination of the two? It
3: was a combination of the two. You'd go like joke, joke, song that was like very, like maybe 30 seconds in lyric with a funny punchline at the end, and then joke, 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 and then another song, and- there was some crowd engagement with it like he highlighted some people towards the tail end and like would kind of sing a song about them it would it was a mix of the two and it's some of the humor which is you know on brand and i find it funny as well like i there's a number of different comics that i like some of it was like just stupid like silly humor like he talked about one of the songs that he sang was about a fat cop on a horse and what happened to his squad car why is he there why do they both look exhausted the horse and the cop like just. Right. Silly, funny stuff mixed in with like some personal anecdotes as well.
2: So it was, it was okay. good. I enjoyed it. On a 1 to 10 scale. Sure. And be honest. Yeah. On a 1 to 10 scale, give me two answers here for the Adam Sandler show last night. The first being, you enjoyed it. What number on 1 to 10? And then the second being, it matched your expectation going into it to what percent? I will say, I'll
3: give it an 8. Okay. And I think it matched... About 90% of what I expected. So he had a Netflix special that he released about five years ago that was a mashup of clips of a stand-up tour that he did, and it was a similar format. Not similar jokes, but a similar format of using the guitars. He had a guy on a piano. Like It it felt the same vibe, but then you got to experience it just all in one show with a new set list, new list of jokes. Is so I, self, I knew what it was going to be.
2: Was he self-deprecating or yeah, is he yeah. like condescending?
3: Yeah, no, it was self-deprecation. Yeah. There was never, never a sense of condensation. <laughs> you never sense that he was uh, being. Well, I don't know how
2: hot the place was. Why, <laughs> why would there be? He was right? never
3: condescending in his material. No, I never felt that way.
2: I, I. What do you think his net worth is? Adam Sandler, net worth. This is one of my favorite games to play. I'm going to go 50 million. What's your guess? Uh, I'm probably low, actually. I'll go 100 million. 350. Okay, I mean that you may be I'm partially cheating cuz my
3: father-in-law did look it up but I can't remember what he told me. It was it was definitely though three figures. 440.
2: Though, 440. Yeah. Wow. So that means obviously, you know, and actually I underestimated that and I'll tell you why. I didn't realize. I think he was probably the producer and maybe even the writer for the vast majority of the movies. Especially,
3: yeah, a large majority of them, yeah. I know, I know Grown Ups and Grown Ups too, most definitely.
2: Yeah. I looked up the other day Darius Rucker's net worth. We were talking about Darius Rucker, right? Yep. Do you want to guess Darius Rucker's net worth? I feel I'm like looking it up right now? You can probably hear me typing. I, I remember being surprised by the low number of it. Okay. Darius Rucker, by the way, since because he's the lead singer of Hootie and the Blowfish, who now is a uh, uh, seemingly successful country music artist. Eighty right? million. Okay. Um, I'm influenced by you saying low, so I'm gonna go eighty million dollars. Twenty-four. Wow. Twenty-four million. I'm like he sold twenty-four million albums. Right. He's getting a buck an album. Seems like a bit of a ripoff.
3: Man of the people, maybe.
2: a uh, lot to talk about, including great article about Tyrese Halliburton and what he means to the Indiana Pacers. The guy that wrote it gonna join us in just over an hour. And at the top of the hour, we're gonna talk a little Indiana and Connecticut but when we come back we'll go back to West 56th Street just in terms of trying to get a glimpse as to what the Colts may be thinking and where they go in terms of preparing coming off of the bye week and looking around them within the AFC we do all of that here on a Thursday it's Aquarian Company 93.5 5, 1075 the fan
1: Aquarian Company on 935 and
2: 1075 The Fan As the Colts are in their bye week now, big one tonight Bengals and Ravens in the National Football League It feels like the Colts are kind of in this like and it's a good it's a good problem to have. Don't get me wrong but it does feel a little bit like you're you're not sure of what trajectory you want to go with here if you are the Colts because we realistically thought at this point in the year I, I mean I honestly thought and maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm wrong it happened once in 19 in August of 78 I was wrong about something right so red letter day here why do they say red letter day wouldn't it be red number day if it's on the calendar and it's an important day, like if something's like, like the 21st is really important, red letter day for you, wouldn't it be red numbered day 21, the two and the one?
3: Is it red letter because of it being an F? That would be like in red ink. Is that where it comes Maybe, from? Maybe
2: that might be like the grade, you mean? Yeah. But am I am I the only one that's ever heard the phrase red letter day? Like, No, I've heard it before. You must be right. It must be red letter day must mean like an the grade a failing the day grade. gets at the top or a passing grade, right? But it seemed like at the beginning of the year, and maybe this was just sports talk fodder. Maybe this was just columnist material. Maybe this was water cooler chat. But the conversation seemingly from the get-go, and it is very rare that a fan base and the media that covers said team are aligned in terms of their thought process. But it seems like, To a man and woman that universally everyone knew at the beginning of the year even though it wasn't necessarily the most fun or exciting or sexy outlook that the 2023 NFL season for the Indianapolis Colts was all about developing a young quarterback and inventorying what pieces you had around him moving forward and so when you look at Anthony Richardson and you said okay he, this year like it's it's not going to be fun per se but let's just put expectations out the window and let's see what we got here and he comes out and he obviously shows some flashes and people go okay we got something here so now it appears as though there is enough evidence to know that Anthony Richardson is our guy moving forward and is going to be and and I would caution people, that a lot of times it takes two years to really determine that. But having said all of that, he gets hurt. And so you're like, well, now what do we do? And, well, we'll continue the inventory. And, Jimmy, here they are at the bye week, more than 50% of the way through the schedule, and they're in the thick of it. So, sure, you got to go for it. And, yeah, you've got to look at it, and you you know what I mean? You've got to be aware of the fact that, it is the obligation of all the players contractually to do the best they can and to have the best year possible. But at the same time, do you in any way, shape, or form for short-term gain compromise long-term vision? Are they in in danger at all of pushing in in any area that in fact deprives them from seeing what that area has or grows or cultivates long-term?
3: I feel like they were and were past that point. Like, for me, the only way I was content with seeing a bad Colts season was if, A, you still got the answers that you needed at key position groups, and B, you were going to be in the running for a top draft pick. We discussed this yesterday with Rhett Lewis, you and I discussed it on Monday, the idea of of a top draft pick outside of the Colts trading assets to move up in the draft is gone. You're not going to catch Carolina. You're not going to catch New England. You're not going to catch Tennessee. You're not going to catch Arizona or New York or Chicago. And that's I'm not even including three or four other teams. That's that's one, two, three, four, five, six teams right there. Now you're looking at the middle portion of the draft either way. So yeah, absolutely push for it. Absolutely go for it. And the whole reason that you have Minshew as the backup quarterback going into the season was not just to be a mentor to Anthony Richardson and help his development along, I believe the thought process also had to be we have position groups, specifically tight end and wide receiver, that we need answers on going into a critical offseason. Regardless of where Anthony Richardson stands at the end of that season, we need answers there. What if something happens to Anthony Richardson? Well, Gardner Minshew steps in, and maybe he's able to still provide some answers. There's been flashes where he has. There's been others where it's clear the Colts – don't want to put him in situations where he has to throw the ball 40 or 50 times a game. They want to win ugly. They want to utilize the running game. They want to utilize short checkdowns and screens and get John and Taylor more involved in the passing game. And that's fine. That's going to lead you to still be in games for the most part the rest of the way. But the bigger question for me outside of a playoff push and whether or not they're going to go to Miami or Baltimore if they get there is... Did you find answers at those key positions? And for me right now, I would like to see them extend Michael Pittman Jr. at season's end. I would like to see them obviously keep Josh down. There's no thing you have to do there. He's a rookie. He'll be on a second year deal. And while Alec Pierce, I do not think is going to be the player that he was drafted to be, he can still be a valuable piece on offense. However, I want one more wide receiver in front of him on the depth chart. Whether that is a T Higgins
2: whether that is another big name in free agency, whether it's somebody in the draft, hey, I don't care. You, T. Higgins is a guy, and I love T. Higgins. I watched T. Higgins a lot in college. He catches everything. He's a big body. He's not a great breakaway speed guy, but he catches everything. But the problem with T. Higgins, Jimmy, at this point is you're starting to wonder how often T. Higgins, how many games yeah, you get. the health
3: having. thing. Sure. And that's fair. And maybe he's not the name I agree anymore. with you about
2: Alec Pierce, though. Like... It, like uh, it
3: doesn't mean his NFL career is over. He's just never going to be the second-round pick that he was I, drafted
2: I, to I be. I think that's a fair statement. I think we have enough body work now to say he has moments, right? Yep. But you're like, Alex uh, – excuse me, Alec I, – I keep going back to the Jim Irsay bit of calling him Alex Pierce. Alec Pierce, to me – do you remember when the Pacers had a guy named Gerald Green? Yes. Gerald Green was a guy that was drafted high, coming out of high school. He's a lottery pick because he had like a – 56 inch vertical and he could like you know get coins off the top of the backboard and won dunk competitions in the mcdonald's all-american game and then he went to boston didn't have a great career but the pacers kind of got him on a flyer and you're like okay well this was a guy that was drafted high there was a lot of investment in him let's see if it can pan out and every once in a while he would have a sensational play where you're like holy cow that's why that guy's on the roster and then a week later you're like did he play yesterday he had 22 minutes well he had three points and a rebound and alec pierce kind of feels that way like he does have catches and flashes where you're like oh wow okay that's why he's there but then at the same time there are other games where you're like i i forgot was he a scratch by the way red letter day A mid-17th century, although some say it could go back to 29 BC, where they found original calendars where what appeared to be holy days were marked in red ink. Yeah,
3: the Wikipedia definition basically tells me I was totally wrong on the whole failing thing. Any day of special significance or opportunity roots in classical antiquity, for instance, important days like you mentioned in the Roman Republic.
2: Now, somebody else points out that in the Bible, the red letters are the words that Jesus spoke. So red letters are the important ones from the Bible, that might be true too. That would make sense for Red Letter Day as opposed to Red New. If it was a calendar, it would be Red Number Day, right? I'm still I'm sticking by this biblical and days. Jake Quarry's been wrong hand in hand. Wouldn't you agree? That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. Listen, w- wouldn't you know that the one time I, I get wrong something off the top of my head, it has some some sort of a biblical reference? So now people can. If the four really horsemen start me, trotting in here after right? that day, that's going to be I mean, come on right. Proof's um, going to be there. But but again, I go back to. You know, right now, if you are the Colts, are you more focused on, like, just in terms of reps, you know, other such things, are you doing it? My worry for the Colts is this. I have a worry for the Colts, and I know that I talk and maybe even overuse the term precedent. But if you look at the state of the Indianapolis Colts right now, right now, there is blueprint, not red letter, there is blueprint precedent on how they should proceed with caution and it's a pretty recent history and I'll explain in a minute
1: query and company on 93.5 and 107.5 the band
2: By the way, somebody points out to me astutely, uh, Jake, you're a moron. I knew that. <laughs> the It's called red letters because on the calendar in the Roman days, dates were letters. And I'm like, well, that's true, but they were called numerals. Yeah. They weren't called like red letters that meant mean numbers. They meant numbers, right? I, I don't know. I probably should have looked this up before the program. I can hear the meeting now. You know, you should look these things up before. Um, Andrew Luck, and I have mentioned this before, Jimmy, but I'm going to mention it again because I think we're – It's it. sports fascinate me because in reality, games are won and lost only so many ways. And franchises and rosters are built only so many ways. When Andrew Luck was a rookie – The thought process was, let's see what we have here. This is the next great thing. We're moving from, you know, this is why Peyton Manning, we don't know Peyton Manning's certainty of of availability, so we've got to move on from him and bring in Andrew Luck. And the thought was, you know, Andrew Luck is a generational talent. So they jettison a bunch of players to start from scratch, and they tell Virtually everyone that was associated of impact with the Manning era were moving on. We're starting from scratch. We're rip- they didn't they didn't pluck the band-aid, they ripped the band-aid off, right? They kept Reggie Wayne. But a lot of other guys, as we know, were sent elsewhere. And I get it. I, I it was probably the right approach because they're like, we gotta start this thing from the ground up. We gotta plant the seed and start watering it, right? So, in doing that, then you have this wonky year. You know, you have the Chuck Pagano diagnosis. You have Bruce Arians coming in. There was just a lot going on, right? And, but they were good. And Andrew Luck played well, and you're like, holy cow, look at this. And so, all of a sudden... Jimmy, instead of organic, and and you know what? Ryan Grigson is the low-hanging fruit in this town, and I get it, and I think Ryan Grigson would be the first to tell you that his inability to understand how to interact with media and fans in general was probably his undoing, but I think Jim Mercer was pulling a lot of those strings. We can get into a whole different talk show sometime about how Bill Pullion was the absolute face of the Colts franchise, and when there was a dent. And the armor in any way, he and Chris Paulian were sent on on about their way. And Jim Ursay, as he has the right to do as the owner, opted to go with a younger general manager that would allow Jim Ursay to have more say again within the franchise externally. And Ryan Grigson was that guy. So Grigson, I think, thought like, okay, we'll start this from the get go, and we'll you know we'll water it organically. He had. A couple of good draft picks. He had a couple of drafts that were that were basically washes or flamed out. But they had early success with Luck, and then all of a sudden, Jim Irsay gets on his Twitter account and is like, "Griggs is wheeling and dealing, backing up the Brinks truck. It's a whopper," and they got over aggressive. And they got too excited, too fast, too early, and they went out and they spent a boatload of money and netted themselves Ricky Jean Francois, and Gosder Sherless and Leron Landry, and Andre Johnson, who, unless they were playing Houston, absolutely disappeared. And Frank Gore, who was a nice player, but clearly was at the tail end of his career and was, and you know, was. He was productive, but not, like, high-level productive. But you got to give him credit because he was, like, 90 years old and was still averaging four yards a carry. But they got over-aggressive, Jimmy, and then when those picks didn't – when those not picks, but those signings didn't work out, they were left with, like, oh, wait a minute, we hadn't cultivated anything else. And Luck's running for his life, and they they still are looking for guys for him to throw to consistently, not named T.Y. Hilton, and Reggie Wayne was on his way out of his career – And they pushed in too early and they avoided allowing it to organically grow. And so for that precedent, it would seem that for this year, the 2023 Colts look at it and they go, okay, we thought it was going to be about simply planting seeds around Anthony Richardson and allowing them to organically grow while watering them. But it turns out Anthony Richardson wasn't, isn't even there but all of a sudden people started playing well and things started looking good and they are now finding themselves right there, maybe due to circumstance a little bit, maybe due to schedule a little bit, But they find themselves in the thick of things, so now do they err? Because I believe it would be an error. Do they err in the offseason and go aggressive in getting veteran players to plug positions where they actually need players to grow organically to be in their prime with Anthony Richardson in three or four years?
3: I'm not worried about that happening. Not to the extent that it did in the previous era. And here's why. Because I'm worried about the other side of the coin. I'm worried – that they make the playoffs this year and they convince themselves internally that they have a good roster, a very good roster, like a roster that if Anthony Richardson was the quarterback, we're winning the South is how they're thinking. And if that happens, what is to make Chris Boward change the status quo of not spending for premium positions? And some of that is narrative based because I get it. He has forked out some cash here and there. He he gave, albeit a low dollar amount compared to like signing a wide receiver. Clearly, he went out and found a weakness in the offense, in the kicking game, and knew they needed a established kicker. Where if drives were going to stall, hey, we're getting three points out of this regardless. And they got Matt Gay, and it's worked out. It's a great timing. Right. So I'm not saying he never does this, but my concern would be especially at wide receiver, they look at what happened with Minshew and they think to themselves, yeah, we don't need to go out and make a big splash in free agency. Our talent development is good enough and they err too much on the side of caution. I think if you and I were to take those fears and mesh them together, you would hope it is a balanced approach this offseason where they're spending more than they probably have in the Chris Ballard era, but not to a fault where it's like, okay, they're going all in because they think they're winning it next
2: year. Let me ask you this. Who would you say, Jimmy, off the top of your head, Jimmy Cook, give me the five best teams in the National Football League? No particular order. Just give me the five teams. Boom, boom, boom. Chiefs, Eagles, Dolphins, Niners. Okay. Bengals. Okay. Give me the primary number one receiver for each of those teams.
3: Stefan Diggs. I mean, it's a it's a debate in Kansas City. We'll we'll, we'll say Sky Moore, but Travis Kelsey's the number one. He's a tight end. I don't know if that if that counts for mm-hmm. this. Um, Tyreek Hill in Miami. Okay. Jamar Chase in yep. Cincinnati What was the other team. I said. I'm sorry. You said San Fran, right? San Francisco. But George Kittle or Debo Samuel, take your pick. Right. Okay. And Philly. Oh. Uh,
2: I mean, they've got uh, AJ Brown, I AJ mean, Brown. Brown, Brown or Brown. Rivera, right? yeah, or okay, Smith. So, Either way, or, or yeah. Smith. I mean, so. On any of those teams, the top five teams you just mentioned. Yep. If Michael Pittman goes to them tomorrow, how many of them is he the number one? In Kansas City, instantly. Not, not. He doesn't surpass Kelsey, but in that room, easily. Yeah. Okay. But, but Kansas
3: City's kind Miami, of. Miami, no. Bump. For most of them, no. Jake. Okay. No, he's not. So doesn't my, pass it. My in.
2: point being is Michael Pittman Jr. a number one wide receiver on an elite level team? Probably not. No. So, do you run danger? Is Michael Pittman Jr., is he at his ceiling, or does he still have game to go? Because what I'm saying is, and I like Pittman. I think he's a really good player, and he's a really important piece for a young quarterback because he's a big target, and he's reliable. No question. But if you are going to be an upper echelon offense, is Michael Pittman Jr., can you be an upper echelon offense when Michael Pittman Jr. is the best receiver you have or your number one option? Downs is a really good player. Really good player, and I think he's going to be a really good player for a long time. But is Josh Downs a really good player if he is asked to be more than what he is right now, which is a a critical slot guy that also gets you big third-down catches?
3: You tell me if this answers the question or not, because I'm not trying to dodge it. This is just how I felt about it since the offseason, and I stand by it still today. The Colts do not currently have the wide receiver one of the Anthony Richardson era on the roster I would totally agree with that
2: and here's the thing and Jimmy not to dodge your your question or not to dodge your answer in agree or disagree I would say this they actually might but it's not the one they should have yeah in other words it may be Michael Pittman jr but I they need the guy that's the, the, to be honest with you the guy that is probably the most important of this conversation is Alec Pierce because you know and Josh Downs okay we got a guy here that's a guy Josh Downs can play. Josh Downs can make plays for you. And more importantly, what I love about Josh Downs, and this isn't to say that Alec Pierce isn't this guy, but Josh Downs is, is is in a week where he's coming off injury, where he's questionable, where he has the knee issue, and in the most important probably play of the game, that guy on Sunday extends his body and contorts it and puts himself with no concern whatsoever about everything leading up to it that week and makes the play of the game for the Colts, that basically salted for them, right? Yeah, he was the guy that made the play they needed when it needed. He, he didn't worry about anything else. He made the play. I'm not saying Pittman doesn't do that. I'm, but Pierce hasn't done that.
3: You know, Pierce. You can count on one hand in two seasons of football the game-changing plays that Alec Pierce has made. There's correct. been there's been flashes. There's been a couple of them, but not to the level that you'd like to see.
2: You know, and gosh, I. I, I Even though we're doing it, I'm not trying to turn this into a kick Alec Pierce when he's down kind of show, but this is the reality. You know, I remember, I don't know, probably I was 15 years old and my dad once said to me something I've never forgotten. He was not the origin of this quote, but I've never forgotten it. And that is that, yeah, there are always exceptions to the rule, but he he who exceeds lives by the rules and not the exception. And I'm like, that more often than not is correct, especially in sports. There are exceptions to the norm with Alec Pierce, where you are correct, he has shown flashes. But when you become reliant on those exceptions, you are in real danger, at least to this point. And and I think that we have seen enough to know he can be a nice, solid player for them. He can be an Austin Collie, Brandon Stokely kind of player for them. But I think that when he was acquired, the thought was that he could be a Reggie Wayne type player for them. And I think now we probably have seen enough body of work to know that that probably is not actually the case and that they're still, and again, he's still young, you're right, but he's got a lot of games under his belt at this point. And and then you throw in the fact that you are going to have a new quarterback next year throwing to him. And that changes a lot of things, which is interesting.
3: When I think of wideouts on the Colts roster, it's Michael Pittman Jr., it's Josh Jones, it's Alec Pierce in that order right now.
2: I would agree with that. By the way, John Fanta, speaking of orders, is in the order next. Writer for the Big East talking about Indiana, Connecticut on the other side. The Thursday Road Trip on 93.5 and
1: 107.5 The Fan.
2: John Fanta, who is a college basketball writer for Fox Sports, going to join us in just a minute. He is kind of the guru when it comes to the Big East and with Connecticut being up on the slate for Indiana. Not necessarily next. The Hoosiers have Wright State in the way. We'll see if that is the proverbial trap game for Indiana. But uh, looking forward to talking to John about not only that, but, you know, just the Big East in general. I mean, we haven't talked a lot about Butler. Um, Thad Mata completely redoing essentially that roster and, and making things over, and we'll see how that works out. You, you know, Jimmy – one of the things about Connecticut when they won the title with Danny Hurley, I was that I remember Kevin Bowen actually was the one at the beginning of the tournament that said like, you know what, like Connecticut's playing really well, and they just, I mean, they were just a juggernaut through the tournament. But the question becomes, does that, you know, does that sustain? Right? I mean, when you look at teams that have won the NCAA tournament in the last ten years, would you agree that they were about as surprising as any of them?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, they are obviously a perennial modern blue blood in the same way that you would refer to Duke or, or any team on the East Coast that had that type of success. But but for the last couple of years, flipping conferences between the American before ultimately rejoining the Big East, it, it
2: did. Yeah, it caught me a little bit by surprise. So John Fanta joins us now on the program to talk about the Big East. And yesterday I felt bad because, John Fanta, I when I called you to, to – you know, reacquaint and to make sure that we could get you on today, which I appreciate. Um, did Gino Ariema yell at you? Cause you were standing next to Gino Ariema And at first I thought maybe you were in a hospital.
4: You know, it, it would have been fitting that you two were the reason why I get yelled at. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I felt bad. I should have, I should have said, you know, Gino, it's, it's Jay query's fault.
2: <laughs> and I wonder what he would have said to that. Who? That's what he would have said. It would have it would have involved an F word. That's probably right. Yeah. Hey, first off, John, I want to thank you for coming on, and I'll tell you why. And I, I I remember, and I'm, you know, brace yourself here. um, (laughs) The first time that that I did a radio, as we call it in the business, a radio hit with you, I, I remember you were starting out covering the Big East. And I'll be honest with you. I was absolutely mesmerized by it. For for people in Indianapolis, and this, John, wouldn't make sense to you, I realize, but there's a guy at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the track historian of the speedway named Donald Davidson. And literally, you could ask him the qualifying speed of somebody in 1937, and he knows the car number, the sponsor, the speed, everything else. And, and you were like that with the Big East. I was mesmerized by... Your knowledge of the conference itself. And so when we wanted to talk about Connecticut, I thought, well, this guy's the guy. No question about it. So um, I'm excited to have you on. I appreciate it. And let's begin with first exactly that. The Connecticut team that Indiana is going to see a game before then for Indiana, before they see Connecticut. But what sort of challenge is presented now for Indiana? And what things is Danny Hurley continuing to have the Huskies do well?
4: Well, you have to stop Donovan Klingon. That's challenge number one. And Killoware is going to have to play a large role in this game and really fight. Klingon is seven foot three. Yukon has enlisted seven foot two. He measured out to seven foot three last week and he wants to stay at seven foot two because he doesn't want that to become the talking point every time somebody talks about him. But this guy is a monster. I mean he, he is just a force on the interior. They're gonna feed him the basketball early and often he can draw fouls, but he'll just tower above you. So it's, it's imperative. If I'm Indiana, I try to get him up in the air. You, you've got to find a way to attack and get him up in the air. If you can get two quick ones, two quick fouls, then you're cooking with gas. But you can't let him dominate the game. They're going to play through him early and often. The other thing is, so so here's a big note for you, because I had UConn earlier this week for Fox Sports in a bye game against Mississippi Valley State. And when you're getting ready to do a game like that, guys, sometimes it's harder to do games like that than it is like a UConn, Indiana, where you know it's going to probably be a more competitive game. So it forces you to sort of dive into your notes even deeper. Guys, according to the advanced analytics, synergy, all of that, Connecticut, through their first three games of the season, they've taken two shots that weren't in the paint or from three. Two. The entirety of the three games. In other words, you got to run them off the three-point line. They are efficiency-based. They're three-point-based as well. Cam Spencer, his ability to knock down shots. The Rutgers transfer has really injected a, a nice perimeter boost for them. Tristan Newton can hit. And, guys, I think their best player could be Alex Caravan, the stretch four, which is saying something because I like Klingen. But Caravan weaves it all together. Now, Stefan Castle's status, a five-star freshman, McDonald's All-American, who, G, who uh, Fanny Hurley says is his best defender. Castle's status is up in the air for Sunday. I, I think he is questionable at best right now, so that could help Indiana. But the fact of the matter is this. Connecticut's still got championship experience, and they have one of the best big men in the country.
2: You know, John, a year ago, the guy that really impressed me in the tournament, and obviously I wasn't alone, but... I just was so impressed and at times mesmerized by Jordan Hawkins' ability just quick release, shoot like a rhythm shooter, right? I thought that he was really fun to watch. And he clearly was a catalyst for Connecticut last year. With his departure, does, has that altered in any way? Sounds like not, but has that altered in any way their their offensive operations and the way they want to do things? And have they been able to replicate from anybody else what it was he brought to the table?
4: Well, they have been, and they're actually more diversified. So they didn't cover up his absence with one guy. They went ahead and and they've diversified. At the end of the day, guys, when they were only relying on Hawkins, at one point last year, they lost six of eight. I mean, people don't talk about that, but UConn really struggled in January. And it's because they were over-relying on Hawkins. When he hit his groove, nobody could beat him. Now, for this UConn team, Bringing in Spencer, Cam Spencer from Rutgers, he had a game-winner against Purdue. Sorry, Boilermaker fans. Uh, but he's come up huge for before in his college career, and he is wired to compete. That was the big transfer portal ad. But I, I just, to me, Caravan and Klingon are not typical sophomores. They're sophomores by classification. They're not sophomores in how they play the game. So, you know, you bring in a a top five recruiting class. Now, that class has not been impressive thus far. So I think the interesting dynamic to Sunday's game is going to be how much much faith does Hurley have in his freshman in a big game? I think the first 10 minutes of the game are going to be huge. UConn hasn't played anybody. All right. Now, Indiana, they had a scare against Army. Sometimes, though, when you have a scare – it actually prepa- it just gets you thinking more. It gets you, like, it, it, yes, it's scary. Yes, I'm sure Hoosier fans were ticked off that that was a game. But, but my, sometimes it's not the worst thing in the world when you're forced late in the game to find a way. UConn hasn't been in a close game. They've flown they've their three opponents out by a combined 120 points. So, to me, I think that's the interesting layer to Sunday. Connecticut hasn't been punched. They've not been punched by anybody. Can Indiana punch them early? If they do not, then it's going to be a long afternoon. You cannot let UConn get up on you. They, To me, they're a team that, that when they get up on you, they can bury you because they can get so in rhythm from three with Spencer, with Caravan, with their shooting.
3: John Fanta, college basketball broadcaster and maestro of Big East coverage, host of the Big East Shootaround. Nice enough to take some time with us here on Query and Company. John, it's a great point you bring up because in the games against Florida Gulf Coast, in the game against Army, it has been early first-half struggles for Indiana where they're trailing at times, but they're still a big enough bully where they can figure it out in the second half and move on to a victory. And I agree with you. If that happens against UConn, it's going to be a long day for them in the Empire Classic for you at your vantage point, I know you're heavy Big East, but as you look at the Empire Classic, as you look at this matchup, how do you see Indiana and how they're trying to figure things out offensively in a post-life with Trace Jackson Davis and J Hood Shafino now in the NBA?
4: Well, first, uh, I, I appreciate that. And as much as I am the East Coaster, you know, I, I – and I've gotten my start in the Big East. I've done a, a lot more Big Ten the last couple of years for Fox Digital. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, I, I think up until this season, I, I, I think Mike Woodson has exceeded original expectations. The hire got, got criticized. And I'm not saying people can't criticize stuff. Now, this year it, it's different because you're right. They are without, you know, Trace Jackson Davis and Jalen hood Shafino did so much for that team last year but but when you ask me what's the path to success i mean the path to success for me is malik Rennell. he's got to be able to perform Uh, a six foot nine sophomore who thus far has averaged close to 15 points per game four assists per game mike woodson talks about consistency with renell you got to be able to come in game in and game out and do it for your team he's too good physically he's too too strong of an athlete to not be a guy that's a force for this team. Xavier Johnson's going to run the team. He's going to keep you in a lot of games in the Big Ten. And Kalil Ware looks like thing he's picking up on things. I, I think the concern I have is who's the perimeter threat? They don't have one. They, this is not a good.
2: Allegedly, perimeter allegedly, it's going to be Mbako, right, McKenzie Mbako, but but that well, has yet to show itself.
4: Yeah. He's still waiting for a Chalupa. I haven't seen it yet. I mean, <laughs> just beyond, like, uh, you know, I, the thing is, sometimes, and I'm still waiting for a Chalupa too, but, you know, I'm, I'll be self-deprecating myself, but the fact is, you've got to it's, – it's, it's a lot, guys. Like, processing the game, even as a, as a potential one-and-done freshman, can be topsy-turvy in a world where fifth- and sixth-year players exist. So do I trust that? Do I trust that M'Baco is the guy that they're going to have be their primary perimeter shot maker? I don't. I, I honestly think they missed in the portal by not getting a shooter. They missed.
2: When you look at, speaking of the portal and just revamping rosters, so to speak, John Fanta is our guest, foxsports.com, where he covers the Big East amongst many different places you can see him. But, um, John, the job that Thad Mod has done in kind of trying to reshape or remold Butler, your prognosis now for Butler in what obviously is a very competitive Big East?
4: Well, my prognosis is last year, they could not make a shot. <laughs> they, offensively, Fad would tell you this, they were abysmal. I mean, he, he said that to me in the preseason. So what did they do? They said, you know what, we, we got to be a little bit different. We can't always be gritty, not pretty, butler, as much as that's in their definition. Guys, you got to score. The game has changed in the last decade. You know, even at the college level, you look at scoring this, thus far this season, it's up. It's up. We're seeing games in the 80s thus far. Uh, and, and it's early, but teams are not defending at the same level. When they are, the officials were told before the season, hey, you got to give more to the offensive player again. Everything, you, everything was a charge last year, they're not calling any charges thus far this season. If you're watching it, it, it looks a lot like just different times in college basketball when, when it's always been a block, like it, it, they've gotten back to that bringing in Posh Alexander was huge. He could be this team's court general. If Pierre Brooks finally gets a chance. We'll see. I mean, that's a big question mark. Can Pierre Brooks, the Michigan state transfer who now returns to East Lansing on Friday night, can he be able to have composure? He's physical guys. He's, a, he's kind of a big wing and he can shoot the basketball. I think they need him to be able to... And he's big in the in the regard that he's sturdy and in the midsection. He's, he's got a little bit of bull and a china shop to him. I think it's big for them to be able to get production out of Brooks. And then Jamil Telfort, who's a wing from Northeastern and transferred into the program, I really like him. He, he could play some bully ball, some isolation ball on the elbow. They're better on the perimeter. Butler's better on the perimeter. What's my prognosis overall? I think they're probably an NIT team. Um, I, I think... They're a team that will take a step in the right direction. To me, they don't have enough in the front court. And when you don't, the Jalen Thomas and Andre Screen are are solid. But guys, in the Big East this year, you got Ryan Kalkbrenner at Creighton. You got Donovan Klingen at Connecticut. You've got Eric Dixon at Villanova. You got Joel Soriano at St. John's. You got Oso Godaro at Marquette. Like, there are elite five men in the Big East
2: this year. Butler doesn't have that. John, you know the program. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna give you a trivia question, John Fanta. Are you ready? I'm gonna put you I'll on hear. I'm gonna put you on the spot like you're waiting for a chalupa, okay? Yeah. There now I'm I'm older than than you by a few years. I mean, I'm I'm obviously I'm fifty one. So I mean I grew up on I don't know, introduction to basketball, late seventies through the eighties, you know, into the into the nineties was when, you know, I was a student, if you will. So the, the, there's a team in the Big East, there's a program in the Big East that I, for the life of me, can just not figure out why they've never been able to recapture themselves <laughs> and get back into the upper elite. They seemingly have every aspect of what you would want to be able to recruit and and build yourself a program. A, which program am I talking about? We'll go with that. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say Georgetown. Well, that's a good one. Okay, so yeah, Georgetown, man, the whole Ewing thing. It wasn't Georgetown. I'm going with DePaul. Actually, I you mean, going to go with DePaul. I mean, yeah, no, okay. Yep. You know, since Ray Meyer left, I mean, Georgetown at least has had has found themselves some flashes here and there. What is it about DePaul? And I know it's an Indianapolis Sports Talk show. Probably a lot of people are like, who cares about DePaul? But it's relevant somewhat because they've been kind of in that vat with Butler the last few years. And DePaul's the one that I keep thinking is, is a sleeping giant. Why has DePaul never been able, right there in Chicago, to get the kind of players necessary to compete?
4: Well, it's a, it's a great question. And, and that was going to be my other guess. Uh, I know it's easy to say in retrospect. Um, but, but you know, it's you're right, because they are in a big market of Chicago. And they should be able to – they're at a world-class arena. If you, if you ever watch a game, it's, it's empty in there, but they, they just built the arena – Five years ago. It's a beautiful building. Beautiful. It's in the south loop of Chicago. Why haven't they been able to do it? Honestly, guys, it starts at the top. I mean, they, they have not done a good job administratively. Now, they hired an athletic director, Dwayne Peavy, uh, who was John Calipari's right-hand man at Kentucky. Dwayne is, I'll tell you, he's, he's done a lot of good there. Um, He's already upgraded facilities. He's got their NIL going in a better direction. But guys, when you've lost for 20 years, I mean, they haven't made the NCAA tournament since 2004. Like, that's
2: unacceptable.
4: That that is, that's unacceptable. 2004, they have not made the NCAA tournament since. So here's the thing. When you lose, and and I'll tell you, you know, let's just be honest here. Why have they not been successful? They have the same family running the school in the athletic department for, for years. And there was no expectation, nor was there accountability. You know, uh, they had an athletic director named Jean Lenti-Ponsetta, who did a lot of good, and, it's, and, and a lot of good in women's basketball. But guys, in the main revenue sport, she wasn't able to deliver. They've made bad hire after bad hire. They, they have not been able to get a young and rising star. I mean, and the best DePaul story that even your listeners can appreciate is this. This explains, sometimes it's not about, like, I know you say getting great players, but you got to get the right coach first. Right. But so then can get the players. They, they hired Tony Stubblefield, an assistant for, you know, Mick Cronin at Cincinnati and Dana Altman at Oregon, but assistants don't always make great head coaches. And there was a reason why he was out there. Um, here's the best story. As they're hiring Stubblefield, okay, who was the other finalist for the job? John Shire, wow. John, freaking Shire. <laughs> yeah, and and the univ- and the shot. The interview with Shire wrapped up, and the athletic director Dwayne Peavy said, "You know, I think this is who I want to go with." He was said on John Shire. This is a story not many people know.
2: Who's a Chicago kid, right? John Shire.
4: Chicago- yeah, yeah, Chicago kid wanted to resurrect a Chicago program. Like, would have had great pride. Rising star, really smart. heady, gets it. You know, the, Dwayne goes to his board at DePaul, and the boardroom looks at him and goes, I think we're going to go in a different direction. We don't like him. So guess what? Dwayne had to call John Shire. They both got off the phone. Both of them were crying. John Shire was crying and so upset with himself, he thought he had failed miserably, that he couldn't get the DePaul job.
2: Three months later, Mike Krzyzewski announced he was retiring. And John Shire was the heir to the throne. Yeah, it worked out, right? Um, I love Ed Cooley at Georgetown. I think he's a heck of a coach. To be honest with you, I just look at Georgetown to Paul, and you know, I wonder, John, if Butler, if those are the teams that are down there in that category with Butler in the division over the course of the year. Any, any does Butler exceed above where those guys are?
4: Yeah, they can, they can. Uh, but you know, here's the thing. Okay. you've got to what you have to do is you have while others are zigging, you've got to zag. So Butler's never going to be able to hit the grand slam in the transfer portal. They're never going to get the best transfer out there. They're not going to get one of the best 10 transfers out there. They have to sell freshmen on development. They have to say, hey, here's our here's our collective. You're going to steadily grow in our program. You're going to be a face of our program. You're going to be a terrific college player. You're going to get to play at Hinkle Fieldhouse. We're going to make you better, and we'll be loyal to you. We'll play you as a freshman. You might make mistakes. We'll be okay with it, but you're going to stay by us. And guys, some programs are starting to do this. Everything cycles in college basketball. Everyone, you know, the latest take is NIL is killing college basketball. No, it's not. S Florida Atlantic and San Diego State if NIL killed college basketball. And the people who are like, it's an outlier. It's an outlier. No, it's not. Hey, you know, St. Peter's, Princeton, FDU last year. These are not outliers. Great teams win. So if you're butler, you have to sell on on being able to get sometimes the three-star kid and look internally and say, how do we turn them into a five-star college hoops player? You're not going to get an NBA player, but you can get a great college player, and if you're able to set them up in the right system, that still can matter. You've got to dig down deep. You've got to roll your sleeves up, but guess what? That's how butlers always had to do their business. The disadvantages that have always existed in college sports, NIL is just a new one. There are layers to it. There are wrinkles to it. But if you understand the fit, I'll take fit over a $50,000 salary or a $100,000 ad buy for a player. I'll take fit over that because guess what? That's what ends up winning
2: in March. Our Thursday road trip is with John Fanta. We're out east with him talking about not only the Big East, but more. It is, of course, brought to you by our friends over at AAA Hoosier Motor Club. On the road, brought to you each and every Thursday by AAA Hoosier Motor Club. You can purchase a one-year Triple Classic membership and save 50% on AAA's legendary roadside service. Don't get stuck on the side of the road, especially when it comes to this winter. John, lastly, Purdue. Um... Matt Painter, your overall thoughts. I know that, obviously, Big East, your area of focus. You can tell by your conversation about Indiana that you are in tune with the Big Ten. We know Purdue is going to be really, really good. Did they shore up the issues that were their Achilles a year ago?
4: Yeah, I think they did. I really I really think they did. I, I think that they're as much of a front runner to win it all as anybody. And I know that people would get squirrely thinking about that on the outside because of, of what happened last year, but that was last year. This team by bringing in Lance Jones, you know, he, he really helps. He's going to give them a different dimension. He's a senior who's been through the wars, fifth year guy. That was a great pickup from from SIU. You know, that was a really nice pickup that Matt Painter was able to bring in because he understands from Southern Illinois how to play the game. Four years there, and he doesn't have to be the best player on the team. You know, I, I think when you combine him uh, and. You look at what else they've been able to do with a Miles Colvin, the freshman, 6'5", Indianapolis kid. They just need him to come in and make shots. What did he do the other night? He came in, he played 11 minutes. He was 3-for-3 three three from three. Zach Eadie's going to dominate. This team needs consistent three-point shooting. Braden Smith can set him up. Braden Smith has 25 assists in three games. If they are knocking down perimeter shots, to produce the best team in the country, bar none. They could lose to anybody because their perimeter shooting was so, it was so frenetic last year. But I think bringing in Jones, a fifth-year guy, having Colvin come in, you don't need him to do overly too much. He's in the right role, and you have the best player in the country. It's not even up for discussion. Matt Painter and Purdue are made for a redemption tour. The Boilers will
2: go in the Final Four this year. Nice, John, with the bold prediction. John, you're the best, man. We look forward to having you on again. I know you got a busy schedule, but great stuff. Look forward to talking to you again over the course of the season. Anytime, guys. I appreciate you. All right, again, John Fanta from FoxSports.com covering the Big East. Thursday road trip, by the way, here on 93.5, 107.5. The fan brought to you by AAA, our friends at AAA Hoosier Motor Club. You can purchase a one-year Triple Classic membership and save 50% right now on AAA's legendary roadside service and much more, 24-7, 365. And I'm telling you, you're on the side of the road in the wintertime, AAA is there for you. It's a lifesaver. Visit AAA.com slash gift for more information. That is triple dot com slash gift. You can always call eight hundred eight 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 uh or excuse me eight 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 AAA go. But more importantly visit triple dot com slash gift for more. Great stuff from John Fanta. Now have you had Fanta uh soda? Yeah, it sucks. Not a excuse fan. Me? Not a fan. How about Shasta? What about Shasta? You had the Shasta? Can't say I have. So when I was in the hospital, um, you know, for the ticker issue, the the one thing once I recovered the reward that I got at the hospital where I was staying, Motman, and and they were the best, right? Uh, so Motman comes in and he's like, I'm like, look, can I just get like a Diet Coke? I'm dying. he's like Yeah, 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 you're you're good now. Like we've we've got you monitoring your heart rate, everything's good. And he brought in like a four ounce can of Diet Shasta, and I'm like, Wait, wait a minute, Ruben Board here is really pricey. Is it like, did you guys get a deal at a wholesale club on Shasta? Who drinks Shasta, right? Have you ever heard of a, a, a place that serves Shasta as their primary soda? I don't know what that is. It's like Shasta is like a knockoff of Fanta, if that tells you anything. At least Fanta, you get like the peach and the fa- like, the, you know, the different. And then there's Fago, right? Fago is kind of like in that same category. Heard right? of Fago?
3: I've heard of Fago, not Shasta. though. Exactly. Can't you haven't even it. heard
2: of Shasta. That's how bad it is, right? Yeah. But listen, man, John Fanta, like just that ability, I, it mesmerizes me to be able to know. I have always thought, and I, I'm the first to admit. I couldn't do what we do for a living. I'm not saying I even do it well here, but I, I couldn't do nationally. Like, I couldn't do a national show, I don't think, just because I don't have the depth of knowledge of teams all the way across the board to know, you know, Jimmy, I mean, you just name any any roster and the ability to be like, well, you know, they got this kid coming off the bench and this coach doing that. I mean, to me, it's it's uber impressive. And the depth of knowledge to me is really, really something. So appreciate John Fanta's time.
1: You're listening to Query and Company on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.
3: I'm back to Query and Company. Rolling. On a Thursday, a wonderful piece highlighting not just the current state of the Indiana Pacers and what they're trying to build, but a feature piece on Star Guard Tyrese Halliburton came out a couple days ago by Rob Mahoney, who joins us now, senior writer for The Ringer. Rob, first off, thanks so much for making the time for us. And secondly, what made you want to dive into what is a very in depth, multi layered piece on? what the Pacers believe is their next great franchise player.
5: Yeah, I think for me, it was just the charisma of his play, right? It was, you know, as as a neutral observer of the game, as someone who's watching every team, I was feeling like drawn to watch the Pacers last season in particular. And I think the way in which he gets everyone around him to not only play in a similar style, play in a similarly unselfish style, but enjoy themselves while they're doing it. Like there's, there's just a, an unbelievable kind of allure to that style of play. And so I was curious, like how that manifests in the Pacers, where that pays off and like how conscious the organization is of, of kind of leveraging those things. Cause for me, from a national perspective, I'm always wondering what does the star player of this team allow a team to do differently than other teams. And I think for the Pacers, like Tyrese Halliburton's style and unselfishness and charisma, that's, that's kind of a superpower in a lot of ways.
2: So the thing that's interesting to me, Rob, and you certainly touch on this in the piece, which is obviously, as Jimmy said, very well written. With Tyrese Halliburton, all things are possible. Is the name of the article at the Ringer. Now, knowing the Pacers a little bit, you know when they built the St. Vincent Performance Center. I I don't know if that's the exact word for it, but their facility across from the Fieldhouse with state-of-the-art whirlpools and kitchens and you know everything else that's in their custom for players. They thought, we need to do something to separate ourselves from the other Midwestern cold-weather cities to try to get people to want to play in Indiana. And I think that Kevin Pritchard knew that he needed a magnet to help do his recruiting over the course of the year on the trail, and that guy seemingly is Tyrese Halliburton. Question is, from everything that you have been able to determine – does he have that extra emphasis to bring players here like they had hoped a Paul George or a Victor Oladipo would?
5: So I think he definitely has the ability to bring good winning players to Indiana. The question is if they're just of the caliber enough, they're going to be real difference makers, right? I think we're already seeing some of the payoff with players like Bruce Brown and Obi Toppin, like veterans of a certain level, unquestionably. Like you can come to Indiana, you can play Great basketball that's fun to play that will get you paid because you're going to be productive in this fast-breaking system. As to whether that's going to work to attract stars, I think it depends on a couple of things. One, like experiences like what Halliburton had with Team USA this summer are very formative. Like establishing those kinds of connections, continuing to be voted into and selected for the All-Star game, getting like, more more situations for the stars of the league to experience what the players on the Pacers do, which is when you play with this guy it's going to sit in the back of your head like you're going to have that feeling of like man that was like there's there's something about that pace that chemistry that connection we had on the floor that worked really well like w- wouldn't that be awesome to have on a more full-time basis and i think the more situations in which tyrese is interacting with the other stars of the league in those capacities his, his impact is kind of undeniable in that way
3: Rob Mahoney of The Ringer, nice enough to take some time with us here on Query and Company. Rob, you tweeted out an excerpt from a conversation that you had with Tyrese's father, John, who emphasized to you that while writing this piece, and maybe you don't treat it like this, but this is just what he told you, if you treat it like just another feature piece, you're not going to have the type of... Feeling an impact for the piece that it could get if you really dive into Tyrese's mind and focus, as he said to paraphrase from it, feel the same joy that he feels playing while you're writing this piece. When you finished it, when you put it out, did you feel what he told you that you would?
5: <laughs> it's a great question. I, honestly, I think I I did feel some of that in the process, and some of that was as much as anything. You know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, profiling players for a long time, but there's in all of those processes in terms of reporting, you know, you ask the people around the team, the people in their lives about a certain player. And you can usually tell when there's something kind of under the hood, they don't want to talk about, you know, there, there are some, some side eyes, there are some rolled eyes. There's some like clipped answers when it, you know, it's clear that they are going to politically say the right things, but they don't necessarily love the guy. And I just could not have had a more polar opposite experience than with this one reporting on Tyrese Halliburton, where it was like people were jumping at the chance to talk about him and to talk about the impact he has on the team and to talk about who he is as a person. And that is, I can assure you, not always the case, but it made the process a lot more enjoyable, for sure, for my end.
2: Here's the thing, Rob. Rob Mahoney, our guest from The Ringer, wrote about Tyrese Halliburton. One of the things to me that's fascinating, and I want you, Rob, we don't know one another, but but I'm giving you the pass here to say – yeah, dude, you are totally off base and out of your mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that this is applicable to Tyrese Halliburton, but it's the one thing that maybe it's only like one percent, but I have pause, like, like, pause or concern with. Um. Whenever you have a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, three-star recruit coming out of high school in Milwaukee, signs with Iowa State over Bradley, Charlotte, and Drake. This isn't a guy that has been praised and seen his name in lights. You know, he starts in Sacramento. So now all of a sudden he's entering into a new arena in terms of the level of fame, adulation, praise for him that he, unlike a lot of players, has not previously experienced necessarily in his young, formidable years as a player, and I always wonder how guys are going to react to that. Tell me why that's not a concern with Tyrese Halliburton.
5: Well, to be fair, I think it's a concern with every NBA player, right, whether you're a a highly recruited prospect coming up all the way or not. When you reach certain levels of fame, there's always going to be variables that, as an organization, you're a little nervous about. And it's
2: burnt this place, right? I mean, a couple of times, it's burnt Indiana.
5: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And. I think if I were to make the case why that wouldn't be as much of a case like a problem for, for Tyrese Halliburton in particular, I would start from the fact that he's so invested in other people on an interpersonal level and not just in a way that benefits him, not in a way that it's like, I'm going to help this person so that they make my job and my life easier. Like He seems genuinely curious and interested in other people for a player his age. I've, I've just legitimately never interacted with any player his age whose EQ is as high as his, like his, his emotional intelligence is as high as his. And to me, that speaks to like a curiosity and a groundedness and a willingness to look outside himself that is different from a lot of NBA players and a lot of NBA circumstances that now that's not going to make him completely impervious to all of the pressures and draws that come with life in the NBA. Like it's guys are pulled off the track of their career for all kinds of reasons, And he's going to face a lot of those same temptations and a lot of those same uh, same attractions from other markets and other stars and everything we're saying about Tyrese Halliburton wanting to draw other players to the Pacers like other players are going to want to draw Tyrese Halliburton to their teams, too. So I, I think what makes me confident in his track as a player is who he is as a person. And it's maybe the most important part of scouting pro prospects, to be honest, is not, will the jumper translate? How are they going to hold up on defense? Are they good one-on-one creators? It's like, can you trust this player's work habits? Can you trust this player's professionalism? Can you trust that when they get into a difficult situation, they're going to want to pick the people around them up rather than tear them down? And those are areas where Tyrese Halliburton is just like, A's across the board with flying colors.
3: The Ringers' Rob Mahoney, senior NBA writer, joins us. Rob, you mentioned in the piece how close the relationship is with Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald. It's natural that it'll be close when they end up with Indiana together after being with Sacramento for that time. But you mentioned in the piece that Tyrese was hurt when the trade happened and Buddy kind of warned him the same thing happened to him in New Orleans. I'm by no means saying that you're now the the grade-A source for how Tyrese Halliburton would feel or react as a human being. But I'm just curious, as you have those conversations... What do you think, from afar, writing this piece, the impact would be on a player that's already gone through so much in his young career as Tyrese Halliburton, if they were to trade Buddy Hield this year?
5: Yeah, I mean, or even if they just don't agree to to a new deal sure. with Buddy Hield, yeah. you know, after who went through his own round of negotiations with the Pacers on a potential extension. And I got the sense from from reporting around that that they weren't that far apart in terms of a negotiation number. Um, so so i don't think there's like a, a huge philosophical divide between the pacers and heels as far as like a future there by any means but i do think things like that take a toll you know like not only are our buddy and tyrese close but reported like r- repeatedly throughout the process of talking to people they would refer to those two as like brothers or step brothers as a result of this trade right like it it brought them closer and bonded them in a way that is is kind of unique in the NBA ecosystem. You know, players get traded together all the time, but often when they do, then they spiral off in different directions. But the fact that they've been traded to Indiana together, they were so, like, their connection on the court was so formative in establishing Indiana's style of play, like the randomness, the speed, the kick-ahead threes. Like Buddy Hield's, you know, an amazing transition three-point shooter, and Tyrese Halliburton's an amazing transition facilitator. Like, that's not a coincidence, right? Who the Pacers are comes in a lot of ways from what those two were able to do on the court in that fraction of a season they played together after the trade. So I I think that would take a toll. And as, as an organization, as a front office, as a coaching staff, you have to be conscious of those things. You have to be conscious of the fact that when you decide to take a player out of the rotation, to trade a player, to not extend a player, to let them go in free agency, there are human costs to all of those things and you never want to, be pressing the wrong button when it comes to your star players. And that's why, honestly, you look around the league, like, you know, Sanasa's Antetokounmpo is a Milwaukee buck and the star of player X is happens to be on the roster for several seasons while he's there. Like these things are not accidents. Uh, I think Buddy's case is different in that he is a legitimately high level and impactful NBA player. In addition to having this connection with Tyrese. And I, I, I personally would think that, the Pacers would be wise to continue that relationship and bring him back, not just because of that relationship, because I think he's good for what they do.
2: The article again is with Tyrese Halliburton. All things are possible. The place where you can find it is at the ringer.com. The guy that wrote it is our guest right now, Rob Mahoney, Rob, this is kind of neither here nor there, but I think it's interesting. And I don't know this answer actually. I don't know if it kind of just came up in conversation and context clues for you. When Tyrese Halliburton was acquired from Sacramento, along with Buddy Heald, obviously Domas Sabonis, who had been a really good player here, was sent out west. Was that because Indiana was actively trying to get Tyrese Halliburton and realized they had to surrender Sabonis to get him? Or was it the other way around? Was Sacramento like, hey, they got Sabonis and Turner. They got to get rid of one of them. We've got De'Aaron Fox already. Let's make the phone call. I think it.
5: oh, I mean, not to split the hairs, but I think it's a combination of those factors. I think there was an the acknowledgement that that version of the Pacers had kind of run its course. Correct. And in doing so, obviously, you're going to have to trade somebody of import. Damanis Sabonis is, is an attractive player, proven to be an all-NBA player who has really uplifted the Kings organization, much in the way that Tyrese has done for the Pacers. But I, when the Pacers management was navigating that situation specifically. I got the impression and I was told they were looking for specific kinds of players. And in particular one, I think the fact that Tyrese was a pass first point guard, something that this organization hasn't really had historically much at all, especially over the last maybe two decades or so was very attractive to them, but also the idea that he is, as we've been talking about and around the kind of talent who could potentially be a gateway for other stars. You know, I, I think for as, as great as Demonis Sabonis is, he was not that. And as, for as great as Paul George was, he was not able to get players to come to Indiana. And so th- they were looking to identify different traits. And Halliburton was on a very, very short list of players who fit that bill. And it made just total sense for them and the Kings both in terms of kind of flipping those guys around and seeing how their fates may change in dealing with some of the redundancies that each had on their on their rosters at that time.
2: And Rob, to me, Paul George – and look – I. I I think the world of Paul George's skill set. I mean, I think he's as versatilely skilled a player as has ever come through this franchise. But the difference being, I think Halliburton has, be, just because of the position, not necessarily the personality or the guy, but Halliburton plays a position where he does have a greater ability to impact players on the floor and lift them up than did Paul George. Agree or disagree? I totally agree. I mean, point guard, at
5: least in the way that, that Tyrese is playing it, is a very high-touch position right you were interacting with every other player on the floor on basically in every possession level and because of that you're able to build confidence in everyone around you really consistently you know paul george you know even when the clippers run their offense through him it's a little more siloed it's a little more i'm kicking specifically to the role man i'm kicking specifically to a shooter there are like assist connections on the floor but it's just a different like fundamental format than what tyrese is going through and so i think when you play that way and you know Miles Turner is ducking in under the basket in a way that we see bigs all around the NBA do, and they they often don't get rewarded like they don't get fed the ball in those situations. their point guard just doesn't see them. The satisfaction and the affirmation that comes from the fact that Tyrese not only sees you like he has the vision to see and identify that pass, but he is going to hit you or he's going to point at whoever has the like to whoever has the ball to make sure they see you. Like those things are incredibly meaningful in in team chemistry, in the like mental health and psychological health of a team over the course of a season. I, I think that, as much as anything, is is why his impact on that team is so powerful.
3: Rob Mahoney, senior NBA writer for The Ringer, joined us on Query and Company. Rob, in regard to gaining elite talent, because of Tyrese Halliburton, the Pacers will likely always struggle still to capture that elite talent in free agency. But is it your understanding? That if they are to do that or if they're to do it through the trade market it is now an easier transition because of the player Tyrese Halliburton is and his desire to make others around him better is that now an easier transition for the Pacers as a franchise with him than it was before
5: I believe so and I think some of it is you know when you think about NBA team building there's three ways to, to bring in talent and get better right it's free agency its trades and it's the draft teams that are in a market like Indianapolis historically have leaned very heavily on the draft for obvious reasons, right? Like you get to choose the exact guy you want at your draft position, no questions asked. And you go from there. Like it's a, it's a very attractive position to be in for a team. But as far as like how the Pacers have navigated trades and free agencies or free agency, I think they've operated much like in in the case of acquiring Halliburton in the first place, like Tyrese Halliburton, did not say he wanted to come play for the Pacers. And so he forced the trade to the Pacers. It just so happened that this trade for Domas Sabonis and Tyrese Halliburton made sense. And so the teams executed it and Tyrese had to kind of pick up the pieces from there and, and kind of reestablish himself and start over with this new team in a way that he wasn't necessarily looking for at the time. And so those kinds of trades will always be available to the Pacers, right? We've seen them do, do well with them in the past, including getting Sabonis and Victor Oladipo in the first place. But what now is kind of open to them is this other part of the trade market, which is a player wants to come to play for the Pacers, right? It's a part of the trade market they haven't really had access to. It's a part that is historically reserved for just star level players. You know, like uh, the Sixers' Furkan Korkmaz has an outgoing trade request that is now like three years old. Like role players do not get those wishes granted, but star players do. And so the idea that, okay, now not only can we make these savvy trades you know, like for Sabonis and Oladipo, like we did in the first place, or for Halliburton, like we did in this case. But now maybe we'll have access to these other trades as well. That I think opens up a much wider world of opportunity in terms of getting where this franchise ultimately wants to go.
2: Rob, are there players? Obi Toppin, for example, could could theoretically really benefit from Halliburton and wanted to play with him. Are, are there some players that would be weeded out because, and I don't mean this as a neck a knock on their intellect, but just their basketball instinct is not able to keep up with the pacing of the brain of Tyrese Halliburton on the floor?
5: Yeah, I don't even know if it's an intellect thing so much as it's just players often are, are deeply entrenched in their style of play. Right. And it depends, it depends on where you came up. And like what systems you played in college, in your previous NBA teams, and kind of where you are in your career. Like Aaron Neesmith is a great example of a guy who, who came up in a lot of structure, right? Playing at Vanderbilt, very structured offense. Then he went to the Celtics. He didn't really play very much. And so he comes to Indiana and he has to kind of rewire the way he interprets and thinks about the game. Like, what am I supposed to do in these situations when it's not just set play call after set play call? And he's been incredibly successful in doing that. Not every player would be that way. And if Aaron Neesmith were eight years deeper into his career, maybe his habits would be so entrenched that it would be a a more difficult sell. So I think there's definitely players that don't necessarily fit with Tyrese. And there's obviously players, too, who you may not want because they take the ball out of his hands too much. You know, he, he... He's played with other point guards, you know, famously played with DeAaron Fox in Sacramento, I think pretty effectively, honestly, in terms of their balance. But do you want another, like, ball dominant guard in that way to play with him? Maybe not. And do you want some of these players who are overly dependent on a more methodical pace and structure? I think maybe not as well.
2: Again, the article is on the ringer.com with Tyrese Halliburton. All things are possible. Rob Mahoney wrote it. Rob, appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Uh, there was a big story that took place in the last couple of hours uh, in a different area of the country that I think could have impact on Indianapolis. I'll let Jimmy know about that, and we'll continue the conversation about, obviously, the Colts and Pacers, and we'll do it in the 2 o'clock hour here at Quarry & Company, ninety-three five one zero seven five, The Fan. Kind of some big news happening. Different area of the country. We'll get into that in just a couple minutes. I, I do have one area of uh, in, intrigue or concern with the city of Indianapolis, Jimmy. I've got. I had mentioned this to you before, and, and you and I both. It, it kind of was one of those things that I mentioned in passing one day, and then all of a sudden, it's like, what in the world? Are you have you looked out on the monument? I have. The Circle of Lights is like a week from Friday, right? Like a week from tomorrow. Yep. Like, are they bringing in Legos? What are they going to do? The entire monument's torn up. It's in, like, like the, the north side of the monument is, I mean, I know that they're redoing it. I, I understand it. But, like, they, they haven't gotten that done. Like, are people just going to be, it's like walking around the Grand Canyon out there.
3: I've heard rumblings they're giving out hard hats with uh, nice should. little holiday lights on them for all need the them, right?
2: ticket holders for that Might event. Might as well just give out miner's helmets and put a red and green light on the front of it instead of, an, I mean, it's like, what in the world's going on out there? <laughs>
1: This is Quarry & Company on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.
2: Two o'clock hour underway here in Indianapolis. My name is Jake Quarry. Jimmy Cook, who is the president of the company of Quarry & Company. Eddie Garrison, the CEO on vacation, and Carl Showbiz filling in on, very capably so, on uh, the Millennium Falcon f- flying things. Now, Now, Carl, you're not a millennial, though, right? No, Gen X. So you're a, it's the Gen X Falcon while you're there? Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's an X-wing. Um, <laughs> interesting story, and it, it kind of went off the radar a little bit, uh, understandably so. Did you see what team is now set to move in Major League Baseball, Jimmy? The second time in, yeah. what, 50 years that a Major League Baseball franchise has moved, right? Yes, correct.
3: The Was it unanimous? I didn't see that part. But the MLB has given permission to the Oakland A's to make their move to Las Vegas.
2: So, it's kind of weird because I realize that the athletics, you know, I mean, obviously there's a history there, and it's not necessarily entrenched strictly in Oakland. But they've had great years in Oakland. But that stadium has become completely neglected. A couple of years ago, I'm going to say it was 10 years ago, uh, I was working an IndyCar event in Sonoma, and I wanted to go to an A's game. Henry Woodford, who had been at Channel 13, is a buddy of mine, works in the Bay Area, and so and he's a big A's fan, so we, the schedule allowed for me to go and go see the A's. And I thought it was interesting because Oakland Coliseum is kind of one of those last cookie-cutter stadiums. You know, you had the old Bush Stadium in St. Louis, Riverfront in Cincinnati, three rivers in Pittsburgh. Um, Fulton County and Atlanta, all those multi-purpose stadiums are kind of the same. Um, The Vet and Philly. So Oakland, the A's were still using it. And, you know, it's an old, outdated stadium. Uh, No doubt. It's just a concrete. And and I personally enjoyed those stadiums because that's what I grew up on. You know, and sports is, is very entrenched in nostalgia. But I remember sitting there, and the A's, you know, have had some good teams, and they were good that year. They always got off to slow starts. But I, I'm sitting with Henry at the game, and I look up and the, the upper ring of the stadium, and they had a banner that said, like, I think it was Welcome to Oakland was what the banner said. And you've seen these, right? The big banners, they they, they, they basically snap into place over seats – and then, it said, then there was another banner that said, Home of the Athletics, and that was like snapped on. And then there was another banner next to that with like the, the logo, the A's logo, the, the, the big apostrophe, you know, the cursive A with the apostrophe S. And then there was a logo next to that one of the elephant thing. And I thought to myself, good Lord, they came up with a way to cover up some of the empty seats, and they, the empty seats just keep multiplying, and they're having to come up with more banners to the point where the entire top of the stadium was basically not even – you couldn't even sit up there. So attendance was an issue. But now that they're moving to Las Vegas, that means now, Jimmy, that the city of Las Vegas is going to have an NHL team, an NFL team, and a Major League Baseball team. Probably the fastest growing area in the United States, not named Austin. So, isn't it, doesn't it stand a reason that they get an NBA team? Las Vegas? Yes.
3: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an inevitable chart. The NBA has made it clear for two things alone what has been developed from the ground up over the last. 15, 20 years with NBA Summer League is Las Vegas is a home for the NBA. And then what they're doing with the in-season tournament of all the cities in the world you could pick to host it for when the final Correct. happens, it's in Las Vegas. So you The homework the is there.
2: And again, I know that I can't remember who it is that always jumps on me and says, I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's cool. But I, I want to make very clear, I don't believe that there is any, any, I don't believe, and I have no reason to believe, I want to make very, very clear here, there has never been an inkling or hint or any way, shape, or form about the Indiana Pacers being unhappy being in Indianapolis or looking elsewhere. I I have, there is no reason to believe that. However, you can never rule out when it comes to relocation, there are a number of things that come into play that... If, if, for example, Las Vegas was not given—I would simply say it this way. If Las Vegas was not given an expansion team, and Seattle is another one that I think would be expansion-worthy, and, and then Nashville probably would be discussed as well. But if the NBA doesn't get an expansion for Las Vegas, then I do think that if you started talking about teams that could relocate to Las Vegas, that— not not on the Pacers end per se, but I think Indiana would be in the discussion of teams that could potentially bolster their value by going to Las Vegas. Like the Lakers don't increase their value by going from L.A. to Vegas. The, the Knicks don't increase their value by going from New York to Vegas. Sacramento could. Sacramento could. Yes, absolutely. And that's a, that. And Sacramento obviously probably for Seattle is is a possibility. They they right? had a
3: battle about a decade ago when it looked like perhaps the Kings might move to Seattle Correct. to replace the Thunder where they had left that gap. And wasn't it six years prior to I, I believe yeah. so, yes. And I you have to forgive me. The Malouf brothers. I, I was senior in high school at the time, but I remember following the story because we were kind of covering it in a, in a different angle, just talking about sports as a whole. But yeah, that was that was the path. For me, and Jake, I'm gonna borrow a phrase from you. You often half-jokingly say that you are on the second half century of your life. Correct. Okay. For me, I'm in the second quarter century of my life. So I'm younger, right? I, have, right. I haven't seen as many things as you've seen. There's still some some naivety there, some, some blissful ignorance for me. Why I, and this is like you, not off of anything, not of anybody I've talked to, if I'm the NBA, I would not see the Pacers – As a viable franchise to move, because even though they don't have the NBA championships to back it up, they are such a ABA backbone and a backbone as a franchise of the Midwest that they would probably be the last team of that bunch that I would want to move away from.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I mean, the ABA entrenchment, I mean, the, you know, the, the Nets still moved, right? Although they were the New York right. Nets back then, so they kind of probably moved back to where they should be. But, but all I'm saying is this, and again, I want to make very clear: I, I, I'm just I'm one of those that I'm always kind of looking at potential scenarios that could develop, and I just think that when it, at, at the fault of no one, but inheritance taxes are so tricky from a federal standpoint that it becomes, it, it does become interesting and the inheritance taxes that could work if that person that's inheriting the franchise is not a resident of the state there there are a number of factors that come into it where you wonder if it would not be discussed i, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination i'm just saying i'm hopeful that that i, I want all th- i want a team in las vegas so we don't have to to worry about it because sure. i do worry about it i will admit that i worry about it okay but on top of that
3: though to reassure people a little bit more and Just because that the MLB unanimously approved the relocation, that is just another step in this process. If you dive deeper, and a lot of it, rightfully so, goes against A's owner, John Fisher, and the way he's handled this process, and whether you think that he has been a good faith actor or operated properly is neither here nor there. You look out in Las Vegas, there's a legal challenge from the teachers union, about $300 million, $380 million of the state's money, being used for a 1.5 billion dollar stadium they still don't have a set negotiated lease to be able to build or a, a building permit to be able to build in Las Vegas and even if they do they're four years away from stadium construction being completed in Las Vegas and their lease ends in Oakland next year so this is, this is still a bleep well, show in and, every sense of the word.
2: And to be fair, I mean, the reason the A's are wanting to leave Oakland and go to Las Vegas is is not even necessarily about because of the riches of Las Vegas as much as the, the total um, uh, essentially neglect – by Oakland in terms of their state. And stadium. depending on who you talk and the, to. And the Pacers have been extremely, Correct. obviously, you know, they have a beautiful facility. They're part of the, pro, the, the, the community. I mean, it, it is apples and oranges for certain. I, no question about that. But the other thing in Las Vegas to me that's interesting right now is the Formula One race that's taking place. Now, when Formula One announced that it was going to be in Las Vegas, people went gaga over it. And it was like, this is going to be the biggest thing ever. Because when Formula One announced a race in Las Vegas, they, at that time, Formula One was like this this rising star because of the Drive to Survive show on Netflix, right? So, just for example, Jimmy, if you had to guess right now, and please don't look, okay? All right. I don't remember exactly, I'd have to look up the date on when they first announced the plan that they were adding a third American race in Formula 1, and it was going to be in Las Vegas, and it was going to utilize the Strip, and it was going to take place at, at night so that they could do it like in morning broadcasts overseas in the areas where Formula 1 has its biggest footprint. When they announced in Las Vegas and said, we're using the Strip, We're going right up the Strip. We're We're building a paddock. We're spending $500 million in a 10-year contract to build a racetrack, and we're going to do it. It's going to shut down the Strip for a number of months. Certain places are not going to be accessible because we're building all of this stuff for Formula One, and you can buy tickets for single-day or multi-day package, and you can buy a hotel room. If you had to guess, what do you think a ticket cost when you bought them six months ago? Just a general admission ticket? Yeah, just a ticket to go and see the Formula One. To see like a Sun the Sunday racing at Formula One. Face value or secondary market? Face value. Seven hundred dollars. I, I I think and I could be r- wrong in this. I think they were like two thousand dollars, wow. right? Wow. Hotel rooms were going for like tens of thousands for the weekend. And I'm not kidding you, like like twelve thousand dollars for a weekend is what they were going for okay you can buy right now on the secondary market if you want to go right okay a three-day pass right now yep if you want to go and i mean obviously day one i think is is right now so like you know what i mean but but if you want to go right now um for the three-day pass 800 bucks I'm telling you, that was thousands of dollars, okay? Yeah, three-day general
3: admission uh, at the time was $1,667 from the CSPN piece. Okay, what was it?
2: $1,667 okay. for a three-day
3: general admission ticket.
2: For general admission, Yep. right? Okay, now, people in Vegas, uh, uh, this was a 10-year deal. For me, the one I think is about to, with this Las Vegas thing, is in danger or has put themselves in danger of falling victim to what I think happened with NASCAR. And that's this, okay? And look, I broadcast NASCAR races. I go to NASCAR races. I I, I work in racing, right? I mean, I, I'm i not here to besmirch any of the, any of it. I, I understand all of this. But NASCAR in 1994, 5, 6, 7, the latter part of the 90s, okay? NASCAR was... The 800 pound gorilla for a while there because it became the trendy sport. People that had not followed NASCAR all of a sudden were all in and they loved it. And NASCAR looked at it and they're like, wait a minute, like we're racing in Darlington and Rockingham and Daytona and Atlanta and Charlotte, but we're getting, suddenly people are watching us in. Las Vegas and Chicago and Los Angeles and New York. Like, l- what are we doing limiting ourselves to being a regionalized sport? So they started developing racetracks and putting races together in those markets, right? And they had people showing up for, holy cow, they're racing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They're racing in Chicago. The race, And everybody was all in on NASCAR. But unfortunately... NASCAR, my opinion, fell a little bit victim to catering towards the fad fan as opposed to the diehard fan. So when they went and they started racing in places like California and Chicago and Kansas City, and those things were super popular, but then a number of things happened where you know... uh, there were a number of factors that went into play, but eventually when when the passerby fan, the fan that was there because it was the pickleball of the moment, okay? It was the, the new trend in sports, when those when those folks went on to then all of a sudden discover uh, ballroom dancing or cigars or whatever the new trend was and they started to then lose interest in NASCAR then NASCAR was like okay well we'll, we'll go back and get the folks that were still in Rockingham and those folks were like no nah, man we, we actually found out that we didn't know that we wouldn't miss it until it wasn't until it was gone and we didn't miss it we're, we're, we're on to something else and NASCAR has kind of been chasing that ever since for me the one to me when they put together this Las Vegas package Jimmy they did it at the time where formula 1 was all the rage and the buzz and still is to an extent in the united states and became the new shiny toy because of the netflix documentary and people were all excited about it and super into it and the miami thing was huge and you know it was it was all the the buzz and the rage but they planned it too far out, and now that that time is here, A, it's supposed to rain, B, the people that live in Las Vegas are absolutely livid because the Strip has been unaccessible in many areas for, like, multiple weeks and months because they're building all of this paddock stuff. And I think that Formula One also underestimated the impact of the National Football League on the American sports public's radar and literally, like Formula One might have been cool in June, July, and August, but once the NFL season kicks off, people are like, Wait, wait, what? I forgot that that win is that again? Is that this weekend? And it's here, and now suddenly people are like, Yeah, I'm good. And you can get a room at like the Bellagio for the price that it would have cost you before they announced this when in, when it was anticipated if you'd reserved ahead of time that it was gonna be like ten grand. My point being, like, this feels like. Did you ever see that documentary on the Fire Fest? Was it called Fire Festival? Fry Festival. Fry Festival. Yeah. Did you ever see that documentary? I,
3: I, I, bits and pieces of it. Saw a lot of it on social media. Like, this kind yeah. of feels yeah. like that. Yeah.
2: Like, I, I literally feel like, and I like Formula One. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, I like racing. I make my living in it, right? To an extent. But there is part of me that's like, are you going to watch Formula One this weekend or wait for the 30 for 30 about it? You know what I mean? Like, like this feels like I will be stunned if this becomes a multi-year event despite having a 10-year contract. Absolutely stunned by it. Well, I mean, the way that it's
3: being covered on a couple sites, ESPN included, I mean, I'm going to read this sub headline to you within the article. Okay. It's about Las Vegas. Is this F1's new Monaco? Like, at least from a coverage standpoint, that that to me is banking on it being a right. regular event, a part of the calendar. Totally. It also doesn't help. And I don't know how
2: much this... Like, Who's I, F1's television partner in the United States? I don't know. It's ESPN, isn't it?
3: I think so. Okay. But but there you go. That's the, yeah, that's the answer to the question of why the pub is there. But it doesn't help, I'm sure, the casual fan that Rostoppin's had the thing wrapped up for the last month. Right? Like, there's no... You're not chasing a championship. This is just another F1 event. And, and to your point... The Miami party is is glorious, at least from a coverage standpoint. Like that that was that was crazy earlier in the year. That is at a different time of the calendar where it is very much a party. For this one, it's October in Vegas.
2: Right. There's no championship on the line. Well, I,
3: NFL's in full effect. You, here's
2: the thing, Jimmy. Let me tell you the other thing that's gonna be huge. The number of people Las Vegas doesn't need things to showcase Las Vegas as a convention city. Correct. The number of people that are on their way to Las Vegas this weekend that are like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to walk up and down the strip and then get there and the strip is closed and they're like, wait, what? Can you imagine? Like, you got a bachelor party. you got five guys that grew up together in Columbia, South Carolina, that are like, let's go to a bachelor party in Las Vegas, Nevada. And they're all going there, and they got a room. And they're like, well, there weren't any rooms on the Strip, so we're staying at Tuscany, which is right behind Bally's, right off the Strip. And we're just going to walk the Strip and Look both and ways, guys. And ga- and, and, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> look, look both ways. Yeah, no kidding, right? Walk over there. And you can't get within – and they're going to get there, and they're like, wait, we can't get within five blocks of the place. Uh, Daryl joins us, calling in the program on the company. Hi, Daryl. How are you? Good. How you doing, guys? Good. Daryl, what what line of work are you in, Daryl?
6: Um, I'm a real estate broker slash Uber driver slash Lyft driver.
2: Okay. You are, if it's okay with you, because we like on the company to give out titles, you are the director of Jack of All Trades. Is that cool?
6: That's fine. That's All right. fine. All right. What's going on? I, I heard you talking about what's going on in Vegas this weekend, and I have a friend that uh, works in the casino business. And we were chatting last he, last night, and he said, you know, they had a bunch of rooms blocked off that, you know, they couldn't give them out to any of his players or anything because of the race. And he gets into work yesterday, and his boss says, open up the rooms because we're not filling them up because, one, the locals don't care about the race. They're more into the hockey and football. And they just, you know, they basically tore up the town. And, and for, you know, I don't think this is
2: going to be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, Daryl. I'm curious if your buddy has alluded – because, you know, like I have a cousin that lives in Vegas, and, you know, I know people that were just out there for the NASCAR race recently that have all said the same thing, that, like, I I think actually there is an increased resentment from a lot of people over how much F1 basically just completely interrupted the regular flow of the city. Is that pretty much what your buddy was saying?
6: Yeah, that's – well, we were out there about a month and a half ago when they're you Finishing things up and putting everything up by the Blasi. You know, look at the Blasi. They had to shut the phone now. Yeah, you know, a lot of the people go out there to see the phone.
2: No doubt. And, oh, you're right.
6: I mean, the, and, the, and, the, and the crosswalks. You know, they're blocking off people looking out over the crosswalks so they can't see the race.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I'm telling you, I will. Daryl, I appreciate it, man. Um, and drive safe with the Uber rides. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by. I really thought this thing was going to be like a huge home run, and it just feels like it is percolating towards being the storyline five years from now. Being about, I mean, five hundred million, man, five hundred million dollars—that's some righteous bucks, right? Better hope Eddie's still betting between now and then. That's well, Eddie Garrison actually <laughs> kept the Bellagio afloat, right?
3: <laughs> By the way, uh, would you rather pay your own dime to go out and see that race, or watch? Two hours and 15 minutes via Twitter yeah, phone. from the Los Angeles Chargers Twitter of all 10,000 receiving yards of Keenan Allen's career. They posted a two-hour and 15-minute video on Twitter, and it's all Keenan Allen's, like, every yard he's gotten in his career. Rather sit down and watch that, take two hours of your life to do so, or on your own dime, go out and see F1. How, how many views does that have? Well, the, that's hard, right, because it only shows me the tweet. So that's just looking at the tweet. The tweet is 93,000 views and it's been 20 minutes I don't know how many people have actually clicked and watched that video I have so I'm one of them but I'm not watching all two hours of it
2: I mean what inspired that
3: he just crossed 10,000 receiving yards and the tweet is bleep it all 10,000 receiving yards in Keenan Allen's career That just two hour 15 minute video of every catch he's I mean ever made.
2: okay can you imagine being you know what that tells me that means that being an intern for the Chargers sucks It's kind of like when I was an intern at MTV and I had to put together video of every interview, every concert, everything that the Stone Temple Pilots have ever done. And then because they were going to host a show on MTV and literally two weeks before my internship was complete, Stone Temple Pilots pulled out. (laughs) And then I wonder if they actually just didn't make all that up to give me something to do, and I have no idea. Maybe that was it. Yeah. They just wanted to keep me in the other room. Like, the guy from Indiana, let's just give him a job of editing tape for eight hours a day. And I had to put together literally 10,000 yards worth of Stone Temple Pilot stuff, and then they, they bailed. Did
3: you become a better uh, professional because of that? As you look back on that, do you think, hey, you know what? that was?
2: I learned patience. I learned patience, and I learned to, you know, Look for the long haul. Uh, real quick, let's squeeze in Greg, who was just in Vegas. Greg, yeah, hey, what's up? Yeah, hey, thank you, Jake. Yeah, I, I got to uh, do a double header.
7: Went to the Knights game and the Raiders game. My son's out there; he's in the Air Force. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really cool. But I can tell you, man, they're excited. And you know, Formula One USA just relocated to Vegas for ten years. So now he, he's, you know, he's out of that. But they, they are making a big
6: push for that so
2: well i know the city so how recently we got you said last week you were out there uh just this weekend yeah okay and so the overall so you would say the overall hype was was good right is that what you're saying absolutely and we could get around
7: the city we could do we did we're not workers obviously but yeah we could get around so
2: yeah it was all good well did you go up and down the strip yes okay because i you know like I said, I heard from other people that the Strip was a complete mess. I mean, I'll obviously trust your opinion there, right, especially if you were there recently. By the way, um, your son's in the Air Force and based in Vegas, right? Yeah. Has, has he been to Area 51? <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we can't comment on that. Isn't that near there? <laughs> yeah. I like that, Greg. That's the best answer, right? Well, <laughs> actually, I can't dis, d, d, disclose those things, right? I want to know. Here's the thing, Greg. If you can find out what's in Area 51 at some point, you got to call back the show on that, too. Is that cool? Absolutely. Thank right. you, Dick. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Tell your son thanks as well. Appreciate the call. We'll continue, yeah, we'll continue the conversation, by the way. Uh, 239-1070, the telephone number. It's Quarry and Company. Said gonna Every time I hear this song, I think of the movie, in Vegas, so stages, which was with Sarah I Jessica Parker so and Nicolas Cage. I thought it was a fabulous movie, very underrated, and I became obsessed with Sarah Jessica Parker when that movie was out. And when I interned in New York, my aforementioned internship, Sarah Jessica Parker, the building I lived in, somebody's like, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker, the actress, lives on this street. I'm like, are you kidding me? right after that movie come out and I would like always like her brownstone I knew where it was and I'm like Sarah Jessica Parker lives there and finally one day at like two o'clock in the morning I was coming back from the deli with a 36 pack of Charmin toilet paper on my shoulder and a car pulled up in front of her brownstone and Sarah Jessica Parker got out of the car and I literally with the two people on the street and I'm carrying toilet paper and I say excuse me Miss um, Parker and she goes yeah and then I realized, Jimmy, I have nothing to say to this woman. Like, I have no – so literally, my, my greatest moment of pickup line of all time, I literally – I'm standing there with Charlotte toilet paper on my shoulder on 10th Street in New York City, me and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I I said – you know, she goes, yeah? And she stops and looks at me. And I go, Honeymoon in Vegas, the best movie I've ever seen. And that was my line. She's like, well, thank you. Very smooth. Uh, Gene joins us on the program. We've been talking a lot about the Las Vegas Formula One – uh, race, the first of a ten year deal and I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. Um and people are kind of chiming in. Gene is one of them. Hi Gene, how are you? I'm doing well, Jake Query. How are you? I'm all right. Gene, do, 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 do we know each other, Gene? Uh you would know me on site, but uh, I, I would know you on site. Yeah you would. Okay. All right. Um in uh, a good well, or bad way. Like like do you do you, you like we wouldn't like fight or anything, right? No, you were always great open wheel media. Okay,
8: fair enough. And you always always got the front row, so, you know, (laughs) you're always a good guy.
2: All right, I appreciate Um, it.
8: I worked in this business for a long time uh, with Cart, Champ Car, IndyCar. I'm actually parked outside of Chip Ganassi's shop right now about to walk in. So, um, you know, over the years we've done a lot of street races, and you know this from IndyCar perspective. That first year is always difficult. You block somebody's favorite sidewalk to their coffee shop, or you interrupt some uh, dog park or uh, some bicycle lane or something. And it, so it just takes a little time to figure out. You know, if you you, you, you recall the uh, aberrant experiment that was Baltimore, right? I love
2: and I loved it, Gene. I loved the Baltimore race.
8: Yeah, and by the third year, you know, the city. The citizens, the local businesses, were like all on board. Like, yes, this is awesome because they started looking at their receipts. Right? I think it's just going to take a little time. You know, F one comes in like locusts and they just shove everything down your throat anyway. So they're going to have to learn.
2: But here's here's the difference, Gene. And and I don't disagree. I mean, I hear what you're saying. And for me, the thing is this, though. For like a Baltimore or a St. Pete or Long Beach or whatever it might be, right. the the street races are coming in and bringing festivity to an area that doesn't otherwise have it in that area, right? Sure. Las Vegas doesn't, doesn't need that. You know what I mean? Like Las Vegas, you're taking an area that you are shutting down for, for th- two or three months or whatever, and you would have – tens of thousands of people walking the streets on those nights that it's now shut down in the form for one weekend. Whereas in a long beach or a Baltimore, to your point, those places are like, Hey, it's worth it because that weekend we make up more than what we would have made in those three months. Anyway, do you see what I'm saying?
8: Yeah. I mean, it's it's not unlike when we raced in Miami, uh, the city of Miami said, Hey, we don't need this. Here's a, uh, bill for 1.2 million dollars in city services before you even get started you know so
2: you know i i will say gene chicago and nascar um that that would lead yeah. credence to what you're saying because people were like man they were opposed to it and man it looked awesome you know what i mean the, the visuals were great it was good for the city i appreciate it tell chip tell mike hall and the boys at chip ganassi we said hi by the way um but yeah i i that's a fair point I, again i think there are a lot of people i i personally will be I'm fascinated to see whether or not this goes beyond one year because it has been uh, so far. There's been in the last couple of days like this pendulum swing. I think of, of just the PR of all of it. Jayla, how are you? Hey, Jake and Jimmy, how are you? This is it's three J. Hey, this is like Thunder Island, three J. J Cube, how about that? That's right. Yeah, this is Jay Law. Uh,
1: oh, J Law. Sorry. Yeah, that's yeah, okay. Hey, I was on Vegas at the end of August to see the B52 uh, final farewell tour. How was that, by the way? And- you know, it was it was really fun, except we sat way too close to the stage. They are old, let me tell you.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, they're they're the B one hundred and fours at this point, right? Yeah, uh,
1: <laughs> but it was a mess out there. I'm telling you, uh, the the cab drivers and the Uber drivers were just having fits. Uh, the the workers weren't looking forward to it because typically the Europeans that come over don't tip well or at all. Uh, and then my buddy lives out there, and he says it's just been a, a mess. And people uh, F1 was trying to get the casinos to charge fifteen minimum fifteen hundred dollars additional per night if you had a window view of the track. And well, I never thought of that. Yeah, and they're putting drapes over the uh, walkover passes, so people couldn't get on the overpasses of the strip and and watch. And they were—they turned up one night, and people had torn them down by the next morning. I guess.
2: So here's J Law. Here's one. Um, like I just got this tweet from Bridget. My brother's currently at the airport, attempting to leave Vegas after a few days. Uh, there's stuff everywhere. Lots of restaurants people can't even go into. Uber drivers are wanting to sit because they can't get anywhere, and the upcharge uh, isn't going to them. It's not worth their time. I, you know, it. I'm telling you, man. And I appreciate the call, man. And we'll look for you, at District Tap. Uh, it it fascinates me the polarization of this people are either like oh man it's no totally everybody's on board or it's like you know hey nobody w- wants any part of it i you know there's nobody that's like "Ah, hey, let's give it a- oh well greg i mean t- made a good point of like let's give it a shot right justin how are you good how are you oh, i can't complain man just working right <laughs> two things so I think the biggest thing is—is is
7: my son and I are huge Formula One fans. We watch almost every race. I think you're forgetting about the TV rights after, for for the show. I think that's the biggest thing for the TV rights for Europe, for European, for South America, for all the Asia, all the different your you know, TV rights. And then the, the second. Well, what do, what do you mean happen- by that?
2: Just in terms of them moving the start time, you mean?
7: Yeah, just moving the TV start time. I mean, you know, they're gonna get. Better viewership, more, no, I get more advertisement, those kinds of things. Yeah, no, I, I get mean, that. And then I think the second thing people are forgetting is, I'm telling you, Roger Penske has probably already called them and said if this thing in Vegas doesn't work out, it would be cheap to move the, that this race back to Indianapolis. It would take them two or three days to set the track back up the way it used to be and make it even better. And how cheap is it to come here to a race? You get American fans here, you charge 50, 60 bucks, for the race, and boom, you got it. You're the, all set.
2: The issue there, Justin, is going to be issues. Probably the wrong word. Uh, the one thing that would have to be discussed, and yes, I agree with you. I'm sure there have been discussions about that, right? Um, the sanctioning fee is going to be the big issue there. Yeah. You know, I, I realize Bernie Ecclestone's not in charge anymore, but the amount that Bernie Ecclestone wanted for the sanctioning fee in 07 after the U.S. Grand Prix initially came here. Um, was the reason why it's not here anymore, right? Uh, Of course, the good news is then you had an F1, you know, a a top-level road course here in the United States. But I do think that the – I think Formula One really wants their events in the United States, excluding Coda, to be street courses as opposed to road courses.
7: Okay.
2: I don't know that. I mean, don't get me wrong. You make a really good point, Justin. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying – I would think that those are part of that discussion. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. I've always felt like it, that whether it be – now let me ask you last one last thing, Justin. I'll get to that. How long have you been an F1 fan?
7: Uh, since my little one's probably four and he's 19 now. Okay, well, that's so. cool.
2: So you guys were before kind of the trend, right?
7: Yeah, I mean, we've, we've always sat around to watch. You know, we watch almost – Every single weekend, but we watch NASCAR, Formula One, yeah. IndyCar. Especially. No, that's cool, man.
2: I get it. I Here's love my... it. And like, if you so... guys, you know, to to go on a trip together and and take in one of these races, whether it be Cota, Miami, you know, Montreal, I, I get it. I love it. But I, I've always been, I've always thought it'd be fascinating to do some sort of the street course race in Indianapolis. Uh, of course, you know, now between the potholes and everything else in town, who knows? Right? Probably not the probably not the best idea out there, but. I I always thought it'd be cool to do one right around the circle, but the problem is now the whole thing's fenced off. Yeah. Right?
3: Could be a nice challenge, though, with the potholes. <laughs> There's a way to guarantee amongst safety. Other, yeah,
2: amongst yeah, other yeah. things, yeah. right, depending yep. on where you are in yep. town. Um, Matt has a question about receivers. We'll do it next.
1: The
6: Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my boy f- This is how I will.
3: Today's Plays of the Day. First for Thursday Night Football, give me the Bengals on the money line over the Baltimore Ravens. That's a plus 160 juice right there. Also take Jamar Chase as an anytime touchdown score. And for another one of our bets, we do have some breaking news to address. This from Talia Goodman of peags.com. Wright states leading scorer Trey Calvin is out tonight against Indiana due to a, sho- a shoulder injury. He was first team all horizon last year, averaged 20 and a half points per game for the Raiders last year, averaging 27 and a half in the first two games this season. One of the nation's leading scorers shouldn't be something that signs line- sidelines him for an extended period of time, but he will miss tonight. The line was 10 and a half, it's now 15. I need a statement game from the Hoosiers going into the Empire Classic. Lay the 15. I'll take Indiana minus 15 tonight against Wright State. Does that guy have a T-shirt? I'd
2: wear a T-shirt on campus that says, I'm worth four and a half points. (laughs) Right? Having warm-ups next game. Absolutely. I'm worth four and a half. (laughs) Uh, We were talking earlier, and by the way, I did text my cousin who lives in Las Vegas and said, "Um, what is the locals' perspective of the Vegas F1 arrival? And he put, I'm excited but curious. Okay. He lives in Henderson, which is like suburban, you know, that's the that's the residential area of Vegas. So there you go. It There's sounds one. like
3: somebody that's about to taste a food they've never had before. I'm excited about this,
2: but I'm kind of curious that's how it's right. gonna go. Is this the first time you've tried, you know, <laughs> Armadillo? Uh we also talked earlier about the Colts and, you know, just the, the the areas that that we were kinda of hoping that they don't get too aggressive too too early. And The receiver position, which is one that, you know, I know Chris Ballard says, you know, we've we've got the bit of him saying every time I listen to Bowen or read Bowen, he's talking about wide outs. And Alec Pierce is one that I don't want to make him the punching bag in, in town, but you kind of really need him to get going. Is Michael Pittman Jr. a a number one? You know that's a question to be asked. And Josh Downs is clearly a player. I I, I think we know that.
3: I think there's no question he'll get paid like one, regardless if it's here or not. That that's going to happen next off season. Matt wanted to weigh
0: in. Matt, what's up? Hey, this is Matt in Speedway. I'm your uh, food and beverage director. Yes, sir. Matt. I like that. Yes. <laughs> I'm currently on top of my house, hanging Christmas lights, overlooking the Coke lot here in Speedway. It's a
2: beautiful it day. Beautiful, man. I'll tell you what, Matt, can I come over after one of the races, after one of the days in May, can I just walk across the street and and just sit down for like 10 minutes? And, I, you know, I'll have to drive home, so maybe not a beer, but just have like a Diet Mountain Dew and hang out. I usually uh,
0: do a pretty big cookout. At the Grand Prix, I actually sneak in a big grill. And we're down on the, the – uh, I don't sneak in. How do you sneak in,
2: in a grill?
0: Uh, it's funny cause I've got a bunch of pictures with Doug Bowles and I, I like cut up ribeye and do shrimp and all kinds of crap inside the, uh, inside the actual turn four, but you know, on the mountains there, that's like sections, or turns two and three on the road course. We, we put it on pretty good.
2: All right. Beautiful. I'm swinging by and inviting myself.
0: Absolutely. All right. Um, so I have been, my friends will tell you extraordinarily hard on Ballard, um, I I think he's – anyway, that's different. Um, I've wanted a fast receiver forever. I think Josh Downs can be Marvin Harrison. I don't think he's the fastest guy in the room, but he's fast enough. He's got really good hands, and he's an unbelievable route runner. I was looking back at Harrison's early numbers. He had like 60, 62 catches his first year, which, which Downs is going to get to. Um, I just think he's slinky, and he's uh, he's going to be open like Marvin was. Uh, now, I would still love for them to add a burner, but between Downs and Pittman, i got to give Ballard credit. He's Those guys are filling in pretty nicely. But I, th- I think Downs is the one and Pittman's the two. I think Pittman is the uh, Reggie Wayne and uh, Downs is the Harrison.
2: You know, I, I listen, if Downs becomes Harrison, that would be like above and beyond. I, I think of him, quite frankly, Matt. I do think of him more as like a Stokely, like kind of an over-the-middle slot guy that makes the difficult catches but doesn't necessarily get behind guys. That's not to say he can't, right? But doesn't right. it feel like he'd probably – I get it. I mean, he's, he's still early in his career. But, I mean, if that were to be the case, Matt, then – and, you know, Reggie Wayne's the one that that, that kind of spotted Downs, right? Um, right. If that were to be the case – now, now, what's that? Is somebody <laughs> sneaking a, a lawnmower past the house? What's going on there? I was,
0: a, uh, I was a guy on a motorcycle. I got my earbuds in so you're And you're are
2: you literally me. on the roof right now? Yeah. Is your you don't have a slanted roof? Is everything going okay? I mean, like, is are, are you roped, tethered? No. <laughs> I'm, uh,
0: I have uh, the the most annoying Christmas light show in Speedway. I'd say I'm on Mulberry <laughs> Road.
2: It's uh, it's set to music. It's uh, I'm so, surprised nobody's. So you're the Clark Griswold. So you have now, you, <laughs> Matt, I got news for you. You've got a new assignment in the company. You're the official Clark Griswold of the company. How's that? It's a big title. Yeah. That right. sounds good. Hey, listen, I love what you had to say about uh, Josh Downs, if that were the case. But, you know, listen, Marvin Harrison's pretty lofty. Um, that would be the biggest home run of home runs if that's who he turns into.
3: But I still if think If he turns of into Marvin Harrison, I'll never say another bad thing about Chris
2: Bowers' ability to evaluate wide receiver talent. Or Reggie Wayne, because Reggie Wayne's supposedly the one that went well, sure, and said, you got to right. take this guy. But yeah. yes, to your point, yes, right? Like,
3: I, I still stand by it. I don't think that the key wide receiver one for Anthony Richardson's era here is on the roster right now. But yeah, you'd absolutely take that if Josh Downs becomes that. I just don't know that I see that right now for him. I see him being a very high level Wide receiver, too. If you're able to see better development from him, maybe he is somebody that takes the top off of a defense. But I don't know. I still think it's either something in the draft or it's going out and taking a swing on a free agent next year, just like the Jags did, or trading. Like that is the key difference for a lot of teams. They realized they needed to go out and get aggressive for their young quarterbacks. And it's not to say it always works out. The Bills haven't won a Super Bowl, the Eagles didn't win a Super Bowl but they both made big trades. The Dolphins haven't either. Tyreek Hill, Stephon Diggs, A.J. Brown, they all made trades in key development years of their quarterbacks and their offense got better because of it. Does that mean it's a foolproof, a foolproof strategy? No. Does it take a perfect stars aligning moment to find a high level wide receiver in a system where he's unhappy and then give up enough assets to acquire him? Sure it does, but that goes on talent evaluation. That goes striking at the right time. It's easier to do it in free agency. It's a little easier to do it in the draft, but if there's someone they have circled and no doubt they have that they could trade and acquire to help Anthony Richardson's development, that should be what this offseason is about.
2: Jason rounds us out today yeah. on a Thursday. Jason, uh just out of curiosity, how old a fella are you? I'm forty two. Yeah, see, man, you're on the back end of it, but like in my childhood there like every third kid was a Jason. Did you did you have like nineteen Jasons in your class growing up?
7: I think there was like two or three of them.
2: (laughs) All right. What's going on in terms of your thoughts on the Colts?
8: Well, I'd like to know how smart this makes the Colts look for shutting down AR when they did. And these other two yahoos and Carr and Watson now are both out again with shoulder problems.
2: Well, it just means that their bad luck in terms of injury came a couple of weeks after the Colts did, right? I mean, I think... I get your point, right? It, it is interesting, Jason. I, one of the interesting points about it, I think, is would they have opted for the surgery for Anthony Richardson like if he's in year five? Right, right. I, and I think, Jason, the answer to that probably is still yes because by all account – and I'm not a doctor, right? I didn't even take the Sally Struthers classes. But by all account, the thought process is is that the the repair to the shoulder for Anthony Richardson – is anticipated to be a one-stop shop and then you don't worry about it again issue whereas if you went the other way of letting it heal naturally then you're running the risk of recurring issues
3: and I think it speaks a lot to the trust that the Colts have in Anthony Richardson that it was largely his decision right this was by no means a move where the Colts pressured him one way or the other, he evaluated second and third opinions and ultimately made the decision in concert with his doctors in concert with his agent and family, no doubt as well, to have the procedure done. It would have been very tempting and very easy for the Colts to have played a short-term game with this or him to have played a short-term game with it and say, no, I can't miss my rookie season. I want to get back out there. And if it is a one-off like we think it's going to be, like it's projected to be, that's a very mature decision by all parties involved. You talk about spending too much money, as a way the Colts could ruin things, that could have been a path where things get ruined if you decide to, hey, no, we can't let him sit the rest of the rookie year. Let's try to tough this out. Right. They made the decision, and by all accounts, he's going to be back ready to go next year for camp.
2: Uh, I'm on my way later to Gambridge Fieldhouse for the Pacers. We're going to provide a holiday meal for those that are less fortunate in the city. Thank you to the Pacers for letting us uh, do that. So we will – I'm going to be doing that later today, and then we will reconvene at noon tomorrow. Sound good, Jimmy? I'm ready for it. Let's go. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're back at it noon tomorrow here at Aquarian Company.